Okay, we're live. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Saturday Free School for December 26, 2020. Hope everyone is having a good holiday season given the circumstances. Um, Saturday Free School is always is a, is a free school for philosophy and black liberation. Uh, today I'm joined by uh, Dr. Anthony Montero, Catherine Blunt, Michelle, Emily, Caleb, Serafina, and Divya. And uh, we'll be continuing our reading of Du Bois's Russia and America. Last week we had read chapter one of the book, and this week we'll be getting into chapter two. The link to uh, the PDF download of the book is available in the description for this free school. So, Doc, is there anything you'd like to say to get our discussion? Just that. Um... I guess I want to reiterate something that I said last week uh, because people might ask, uh, why are you reading an unpublished manuscript by W.E.B. Du Bois that was published or completed, I should say, in 1950? Uh, why are you referring back to that at a, a time in the 21st century uh, when the nation is in an unprecedented crisis. And I guess I would say in part to answer that question is that in moments like this, theory uh, is more important than at times when you're not in crisis. And um, for us, for the people of this country, and in a lot of ways, the people of the world, uh, there cannot be a move forward in a revolutionary or radical way without theory. And um, speaking for myself, uh, Du Bois is one of the most important theorists of the modern epoch. Uh, it is you know, now clear to everybody that is interested in knowing that Du Bois was practically erased from the American and even African-American intellectual um, environment for almost 50 years uh, because of, of the ruling class targeting him as a threat. Uh, it was only with the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union and the world communist movement that it became a bit acceptable to once again write about maybe teach in a university, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, but that having been said, uh, and this is um, a free school project, I guess you could say a free school discovery that the more we read Du Bois, the more we realize how important he is uh, to revolutionary thinking. The last point I'll make, uh, I wrote an article called uh, V.I. Lenin and W.E.B. Du Bois, Class Struggle and Civilization that was published in the Black Agenda Report. And there was considerable pushback. I guess there was some people who liked it, I don't know. But there was a vocal pushback uh, 
because the essay made uh, what for many people is an extraordinary claim that uh, Lenin, after the seizure of power in the Russian Revolution, that Lenin was increasingly closer in strategic outlook to Du Bois than he was to Trotsky or Rosa Luxemburg. Um, I think it's even, it even goes beyond that. Uh, as we read this unpublished manuscript, what at least I am discovering uh, that first of all, how passionately Du Bois defended the Russian Revolution and Lenin and Stalin, but then the concept of the role of civilization and the East in the future of revolutionary change of the planet, uh, in this respect, one could perhaps argue, and this is what we'll have to determine and make a judgment upon as we read this text, that for this time, that is the 21st century, Du Bois is at least as important as Lenin, if not more so. That is to say that Du Bois's understanding of the East, of China, India, and Africa placed him in a unique position to understand the future that we are living right now. Uh, I guess the other thing I would uh, say is that um, you know, the fact that Du Bois is excluded from the revolutionary ideological and theoretical practices of most quote leftists, including the black left, who neither understand Du Bois or read Du Bois. Um, and it is a weakness of the left in general and the black left in particular that they are going everywhere willy-nilly to avoid a truth that might be right in front of their eyes. Uh, so our work, I think, is very, very important, especially at a time like this. And I think as we go through this text, we will discover, uh, and we are discovering, how huge a figure Du Bois was and is, and how important he is to the work of revolutionaries at this time. Okay, so uh, shall we uh, start the reading? I think Michelle is going to be reading chapter two. Wait, what page does that start on this uh, I believe that is page uh, 18. Oh, 18, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> sure. um, 
Chapter Two, The Soviet Union in 1926. It is 1926. I am sitting in Revolution Square opposite the second house of the Moscow Soviets and in a hotel run by the Soviet government. Yonder the sun pours into my window over the domes and eagles and pointed towers of the Kremlin. Here is the old Chinese wall of the inner city. There is the gilded glory of the Cathedral of Christ the Savior. Through yonder gate on the vast red square, Lenin sleeps his last sleep, with long lines of people peering each day into his dead and speaking face. Around me roars a city of two millions. I have been in Russia something less than two months. I did not see the Russia of war and blood and rapine. I know nothing of political prisoners, secret police, and underground government. My knowledge of the Russian language is sketchy, and of this vast land, one of the largest single countries on earth, I have seen only a small part. But I have seen something. I have traveled 2,000 miles and visited four of its largest cities and many of its towns. I have seen the Neva, Dnieper, Moscow, and Volga rivers, and stretches of land and village. I have looked into the faces of its races, Russians, Ukrainians, Jews, Tartars, Gypsies, Caucasians, Armenians, and Chinese. I have not done my sightseeing and investigation in groups and crowds, but have in nearly, in nearly most cases gone alone with one Russian-speaking friend. In this way, I've seen schools, universities, factories, stores, printing establishments, government offices, palaces, museums, summer colonies of children, libraries, churches, monasteries, foyer houses, theaters, cinemas, day nurseries, and cooperatives. I've seen some celebrations, 200,000 youths marching on Youth Day. I've talked with peasants and laborers, commissars of the Republic, teachers, and children. I have walked miles of streets in Leningrad, Moscow, Nizhny Novgorod, and Kiev at morning, noon, and night. I have trafficked on the curb and in the stores. I have watched crowds and audiences. I have gathered some documents and figures, plied officials with questions, and sat still and gazed at this Russia that the spirit of its life and people might enter my veins. I stand in astonishment and wonder at the revelation of Russia that has come to me. I may be partially deceived and half informed, but if what I have seen with my eyes and heard with my ears in Russia is Bolshevism, I am a Bolshevik. This enthusiasm did not mean that in 1926, Russia was a picture of happiness and success. It was not. There was stark poverty. I remember the hordes of incredibly dirty, ragged and wild children of war and famine who were hiding in the sewers and stealing like beasts through the streets at dusk. I remember the long lines of ragged people waiting to buy a loaf of bread. I remember also the bookstores, the readers on the trams, the crowds and museums. A poor land, but a land of enthusiasm and one which, to my astonishment, had not emerged from war in 1918 on Armistice Day, but was beginning just in 1926 to breathe air free from civil war and invasion.
promoted and participated in by my own nation. We had written out of Stettin at eight in the morning along flat land. The city rose a little old and yet new with busy harbor and we sailed the long broided river, broidered river bay and the canal mole. Three days we gilded through the Baltic and the Gulf of Finland until we came to the East Sea. Some Germans aboard were returning to Volga and they sang sad, sweet folk songs in the night. German and Russian was heard and a little French, but no English. The low gray back of Gothland rose on the left in the late afternoon on the second day. Many ships hurrying towards Stockholm slipped by noiseless in the night, but in the morning low islands lay in the east. Estonia came and a little fairy island rising eastward, like a secret resting place of elves beneath a gray cold rain. There was ever a secret excitement among us. We whisper and speculate. Russia, we exchange rumors. We correct them and spread others. Russia, mysterious. Ah, nungsvol. Many of the passengers are German tourists. There is a bridal couple, very conscious, a Paris Teuton, big, calm, and cold, a mother with her young golden daughter, quite spoiled by Muti, a big and bearded Russian, a former judge, but not a comrade. He hates the Bolsheviks. An actress, silked and coiffed all the, war, all the world. We sing by phonograph in einem kühlen Grunde. The chimneys of Rival smoke far away and its great lighthouses rise. A sailboat gracefully crosses our bow and then Kronstadt, long lines of empty docks, a few warships dismantled, old yellow forts and warehouses, some crumbling, some rebuilt, most of them empty, and above all, a golden dome, stately in the quiet morning. This is a ghost city of a dead empire. I first went to St. Petersburg, now Leningrad, and walked the Nevsky Prospect. I stood in the place of the revolution and the parade ground looking on the proudest of bridges spanning the Neva. There is a moving monument, marble and double eagled, a low wall of grayish brown with great square stones and wide openings with the graves of a thousand victims dead beneath the flowers. In the center were the sickle and the hammer and the words, you who fought for the freedom of the world, you who are her first victims and whom we envy, you who fighting since 1848 deserve to lie here too. Last night at twilight, I walked in, in the square before the winter palace. It loomed red brown and the statues and chimneys above it were as ghosts. It must have been a brilliant and wonderful city in the day of czars for those who could enjoy it. There is a certain barbaric splendor that blends here and there. The red marble column to the Napoleonic Wars is almost Egyptian. The marble atlases before the hermitage, the gigantic bronzes of Cathorn. Leningrad is cleaning house feverishly, raking, planting, whitewashing, and painting. There is not much now building, I should say. New building. New building. Oh. There is not much new building, I should say, but there's so much to be done and they're at it. Can I just say something? Um, this is Du Bois' um, 
on his reflecting upon his first trip uh, to the Soviet Union in 1926. Uh, and he's describing uh, what uh, Leningrad, which was at one time named Petersburg after Peter the Great, but after the revolution, it was renamed Leningrad after Lenin. And he is saying that uh, 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 it is not uh, a perfect place. This is 1926, uh, nine years or so after the revolution and um, six or seven years, you might say, after the, the brutal and bloody civil war that was initiated by Western powers to overthrow the Bolshevik revolution. Uh, and he saw hunger, but he also saw a country that was trying to fulfill the ideal of the revolution. And at this time in 1926, he would write an essay for uh, the Pittsburgh Courier. I think it's the Pittsburgh Courier that he wrote this article for uh, talking about his trip to Russia. And he says, and this is very significant, if what I have seen is Bolshevism, then I am a Bolshevik. Um, quite heroic statement given all of the propaganda against the Russian Revolution in the West and in the United States. So that's what he's describing. Uh, and, and this thing that he says that, and I experienced this myself uh, in the Soviet Union, that it is not, was not then, and probably not now, this hyper-modern city, like, let us say, New York, with tall skyscrapers everywhere. It was, uh, I think he, if I'm right uh, about this, Michelle, he says it was both modern and barbaric, mm -hmm. uh, reflecting upon the, uh, the Slavic um, uh, uh, and the, um, the nomadic uh, attacks upon Russia and occupation of Russia. So it had both the ancient and the modern. Uh, and often you did not feel that you were in a completely Western city in Leningrad when I was there. It was Eastern and Western. Mm. So I just wanted to say that. Mm. I think this is the paragraph I was at. Um, the Neva ripples a bright and beautiful silver band beneath a half dozen bridges with palace and fortress and towers of churches. Last night, I wandered up and down the October prospect. The electric light came on late. People wandered to were drunk. The park at the end was filled with a quiet, happy crowd. An accompanied young woman walked unaccosted. It would be hard to recall my first impressions of the population of Leningrad. There are a number of whining beggars near the great hotels and even on the trams. There are some unkempt and wild looking gamins. Yet the off scourings of men seem comparatively few. The level of prosperity, however, is low. Poor clothes, old fashioned and patched, few silk stockings, bad shoes, 
and yet on the whole a contented looking folk busy going and coming working not unusually gay but not morose nor complaining some of the people on the street seemed a bit gruff and envious there are covert comments on our western clothes one girl streetcar conductor did not like to give us directions she looked a fallen shop girl Another was very kind. She looked a risen peasant. There are strong internal foes of the Bolsheviki evident. Intellectuals, merchants, gentry. Manners on the street are not too good, but tempers are placid. There's some bowing and raising of hats, but few pardons are asked. With general kindliness comes some rude self-assertion from the gutter. They naturally crave for comfort and luxury. I saw a kerchiefed woman, very poorly dressed, standing in perfect silence, motionless beside a window of dresses, silks, and underwear. The public ordering of the revolution has been in some respects a masterpiece. Books, 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 cheap and of every sort, size and subject, everywhere. Public monuments are cared for. They left Alexander III in mighty bronze and said simply, this is the author of our troubles. They let Catherine the Great flaunt her ample skirts without remark. The czars from Peter to Alexander II lie buried in the cathedral of Peter and Paul, lying in simple marble state. Peter the Great rides unmolested in his great boulder, but schools, theaters, state stores, newspapers carry a mighty propaganda. In nine years, the people have had put before them a new interpretation of history and economics. We saw the prisoners' cells in the Cathedral of St. Peter and Paul, the Church of the Tsars, the little house built within a house where Peter the Great lived. We rode out to the Islands of the Blessed, which was once the Tsar's village, Tarko Selo, now called the Children's Village, Detsko Selo, those may see the meaning of this who glance at the Palace of Alexander's, that golden throne room, the rooms of amber and marble, the tables of lapis lazuli and mother of pearl, the exquisite inlaid floors. It is a barbaric burst of splendor to titillate the jaded palates of the masters of millions, outdoing Versailles, Potsdam, Berlin, and Vienna. Leningrad is almost surrounded with factories. They tell me of great iron and steel works and a factory population which was the backbone of the revolution. Tall chimneys smoke everywhere and large numbers of workmen pass. The ride between Leningrad and Moscow is like Southern New England in olden times. Rolling pines and beaches, cattle and horses, grass. Only villages are huddled gray and poor and the crops look meager. Yonder Moscow squats and burns flat like a wide village, built like an irregular star of circles about the Kremlin. First came the Kremlin as a fortress in the 12th century. Then in 16th century came the inner city around the Kremlin called Chinese town. Then in the 17th century came the enveloping wall of the white city, followed by a wall of larger city, of a larger city of artisans, and finally the new suburbs of servants and artisans and further extended a greater city, one beyond even the ancient fortress and out past the new maiden's convent. 
From the sparrow hills of romance, the Lenin hills of revolution, Moscow looks rather splendid. Playing in the wide bend of the river with its great cathedral of Christ, rising in five golden domes and almost hiding the Kremlin. Moscow also is feverish with repairs, painting, whitewashing, building with wood, brick, plaster, and stone. Scaffoldings rise and fall, roofs swarm with hammering, hard sidewalks drip with calcimine, roads are torn up and put down, domes are gilding, flowers are planted, old walls and monuments are restored. But with all this, the city is still cold and warm. Leave any modern city unkept for 10 years and it is half ruined. Moscow is poorly clothed, very poorly, but fairly fed and badly housed. There is a fad of careless dressing, blouses, caps and boots, colored shirts and collars for men, blouses, kerchiefs, socks for women. Yet the women eye Western clothes hungrily and the state taxes their import remorselessly. I visited one of the great state factories of the Moscow Cooperative where they employ 1,875 people and make candy, cookies, soap, and perfume. The director was a former workman of the factory, nominated to the post by his fellows and appointed by the directors. A free, simple fellow of 40, full of enthusiasm and eager to inform, to whom the working folk raised their hats. The machinery was modern and made in England. The employees were clothed in white, simple, inexpensive cotton drill. At the expense of the factory, the meals of soup and a meat course with bread were furnished. Then in a clean light living room at 30 kopecks apiece, they had a library of 4,000 books and a reading room. The library's a brown slip of a girl, a voluntary communist worker, was vibrant, talkative, exact with her records and careful of her card catalog. The children from two to nine were taken care of in a day nursery with nurses and daily visits by the physician. Visitors and mothers were compelled to wear cotton over their clothes and their children had aprons. They were given regular afternoon naps in bed, meals with milk and eggs. There was a garden with sand for them to play. Mothers had a clean room and table to come and nurse their children. The products are beautifully made with clean, unadulterated materials and supplied to the public 10 to 20% cheaper than private firms. Above all is the spirit, the gaiety, the earnestness and rising efficiency, the health, light, and air. 25% of the workers are communists. Girls on piecework are said to earn normally $25 a month. Some men earn $1,200 a year. All get one month's vacation with pay and free Medicare, medical care and insurance. There was one interesting incident as we visitors came in, a big capable working woman pushed by. She was dissatisfied with her job in one of the stores. She did not like the manager and wanted the director to transfer her. He promised her an answer tomorrow. Tomorrow she thawed him, thawed him. Would you tell your wife that? But I must consult the manager. You'll forget, no, I won't. Well, can't you decide now? You see, it's this way. And the long explanation was gone over again. 
You see, it's this way. And the, oh, well, tomorrow I will see, repeated the young and harassed chief. She finally took his phone number and left. There is no anger, but there is a lot of industrial democracy. In the state printing office, Russia is printing books for her 100 or more languages. Everybody, even workers at lunch, were eager to show us. The school had a hundred apprentices, Jewish, Chinese, Tartar, Arabic, a dozen or more people, boys and girls. School books, now alphabet, new, alpha, new alphabets, cards, placards, all sorts of things in black and color were scattered about. Students are sent by trades unions or at public expense. They are fixing and comparing letters of the alphabets by all sorts of devices. They have German, English, and American equipment, but German is cheapest and English and German firms give credit terms. They spend 250,000 rubies, ru rubles, rubles a month on the work. They spent 500,000 rubles on equipment last year and will spend 400,000 next. They set type here, print, cut and bind, photograph and make plates, repair and rebuild machines. It is a little nation of nations working happily together. I saw two universities today, the Communist University for Eastern Peoples, 1,000 students with everything furnished, clothes, food, tuition, and 10 rubles a month for extras. Laboratory and seminary methods were used with charts, reports, and careful individual records. There is a four-year course in mathematics science and social sciences with considerable practical work in factories and in villages. There are 72 nationalities attending, only, only communists are admitted, chosen by their own nationalities. They must be healthy, have a record of two or three years work and advanced enough in education. The Chinese University of 300 to 460 women, students, 60 women, with a two-year course is privately supported with a fine library and reading room. There are striking diagrams of China's political and economic serfdom, showing England in control of customs and salt, France running the post office, and each foreign director with two to eight European advisors. Students are crowded in the reading and studying rooms with interpreters and Japanese dictionaries. The Great National Library, now named after Lenin, has three million volumes, old fashioned but beginning to grow. It received only a pittance under the czars, but now has new buildings and modern equipment. A little library school trains 200 librarians in one and two year courses for village libraries. <laughs> The Library of the Communist Academy has 800,000 volumes and has never been cataloged by modern methods. A tall, charming, and beautiful woman is at the task and had a dictionary card catalog of 15,000 titles already started. A hard task with Russian and Latin lettering. She had worked in America seven years in the Library of Congress and at the Widener Library of Harvard. She was full of enthusiasm in her cramped but overflowing quarters and expects a modern library within two years. They spent 100,000 last year on new books. Once she and her husband had been exiled for seven years in Siberia under the czars, 
but in 1905, they escaped to America. There he made a speech in Russian and said that the revolution must in time spread to America. He was arrested and sent for a year to prison at Easton, Pennsylvania. She said he suffered more in that year than in the seven years in Siberia and came out on a stretcher, prostrate from typhus and pneumonia. For a year he was ill. I saw the Marx Engels Institute, a marvelous collection of the whole literature of economic revolt, the world over and in all modern tongues, books, pamphlets, and 40,000 photostatic copies. It is one of the finest working libraries I have seen with 175, 349,000 volumes. The Museum of the Revolution is a history of Russian effort to be free in picture, relic, the mani and manuscripts such as the world has seldom known. It is almost unbelievable how the Russian people were murdered, oppressed, and tortured. Since 1774, many have fought back. In 1825, in the 40s and in the 60s, a vast army struggled in 1905, and the first victory came in 1917. In blood and tears, Russia has striven for freedom. There is much criticism allowed in Russia. One man writes in the press of rubbers, I suppose if I live, I may get to buy rubbers by Christmas. Mensheviks complain that the state has no money. Where are the rubles? Peasants complain that the new manufacturers are not good. There's argument as to wages. The theater for the people is thriving in poverty and bareness, yet with beauty. I saw Don Juan in the experimental theater, rarely done with the Mozart music and new words. Propaganda was there and revolution rose to hunt down the profligate and save wives, daughters, and sweethearts. But it was done with a smile, gaily and artistically. I saw Boris Gundanov played with historic costumes. There were magnificent settings. I saw the woodland interpreted by Mayerhold the barest mechanisms, no scenery, footlight, no props, but extraordinary acting. In one of the studios of the art theaters, the lovely farce, the flea was given. The peasant blacksmith who knew English technique and made a mechanical flea fitted with horseshoes and marked with a sweetheart's name. Finally, I saw Merhold's prophetic, Hail China. Russia seems to me the only modern country where people are not more or less taught and encouraged to despise and look down on some group or race. I know countries where race and color prejudice show only slight manifestations, but no country where race and color prejudice seems so absolutely absent. In Paris, I attract some attention. In London, I meet elaborate blankness. Anywhere in America, I would get anything from curiosity to insult. In Moscow, I pass unheeded. Russians quite naturally ask me for information. Women sit beside me confidently and unconsciously, confidentially and unconsciously. Today, I was on the estate of the Count of Orlov. One could still picture its former glories, a palace of marble with silk, gold, and paintings, a vast park with noble trees, a rolling lawn, vales and dells, a lake and the gleam of the Moscow River, parkways enough to house a town. 
little palaces, a beautiful bathhouse, rows of flowers, offices, barns, and buildings. It was the kingdom of a little king two miles from the Chinese city, but now in the suburbs of Moscow. The early Orlovs got their start when one became sweetheart of the great Catherine. They reigned in luxury and splendor for two centuries. Then the Soviet Republic took their property and made it into a public park and turned the palace into a furniture museum. Frankly, this property would seem to be doing Russia more good in its present use than in its former. That the present Orlov suffer is true, but that the Orlovs from start to finish have received 10 times as much as they ever gave, and that Russia has, long, has been long carrying them as unhealthy barnacles on her body, economic and social is quite as true. In the museum, one noticed the beauty and splendor that once surrounded the few. Were they high-thinking artists enjoying life? Those that were revolted from the system. The others had their maws filled with overplus and were still unhungered. Idle propagates was, was the largest crop. I went to the Tretkyov gallery today and saw the Russian world of art preserved, an astonishing, astonishingly beautiful thing. A beauty once set apart and but half known, the work of Repin, his heartbreaking unexpected, and his Ivan the Terrible with his murdered son, Verin Shagan's skull, marvelous religious conceptions with strong and beautiful faces, Menshikov in exile, fairies and gods, the last judgment with the golden domes of Russian churches. All about us were the crowds, were crowds of workers and peasants listening to art explained. I never saw or dreamed of a picture gallery with such an audience. Women, children, boys, men, uncouth, crowding, but wrapped. Tonight I saw Lenin lying as if- Can I just say something about mm -hmm. what, he, what he is portraying and describing? You know, he's describing a country mainly by looking at uh, Leningrad and Moscow that, has, that is only emerging um, from all of the diseconomic and social dislocation of the revolution and the civil war that followed it, not to mention of World War I. Um, so he's, he's talking about literally 12 years of economic devastation. And what he's, what he's saying is the country is being put back to work, but wages are very low, people don't have a lot, there's still beggars on the street uh, and people who are not well clothed and apartments that are very small and, and not elaborate, people are not elaborately housed. But what he is describing is that the revolutionary government has invested in the people by investing in education, in, um, in books, in libraries and in museums. Um, he'll, you know, he'll elaborate upon this. What is the meaning of that? Uh, I'll just tell you what he kind of comes to. An investment in the people rather than in things is an investment in the future. And that's what he's setting up. 
Uh, we'll see where he goes with this as, as the narrative develops. And of course, you know, just a, a small thing, Du Bois writes his observations, which are important for his scientific evaluation of the Russian Revolution. So it's almost like in a novel form that is like a novel, he writes about uh, what he's seeing about the life of Moscow and Leningrad. Uh, another thing that is characteristic of Du Bois. He writes social science with the same flair and beauty of that a novelist or a poet would write. Uh, so I just, just so everybody knows what's going on at this point in the, uh, in the uh, manuscript. And when he talks about seeing Lenin lying as if asleep, he's, you know, after Lenin's death uh, in Moscow, the government built a mausoleum within which the embalmed body of Lenin is on display. And long lines of people, even up till today, when they visit Moscow, uh, will go to the Lenin mausoleum. And you can actually see Lenin's body. Tonight, I saw Lenin lying as if asleep. There was a long, long queue of workers as every night. We went into the square beneath the walls of the Kremlin. He lay so still and natural. A little man, bold and blonde, bearded, with clipped mustache, just asleep. His form was partly outlined. Above on the Kremlin burned the red flag. On the square directly opposite his tomb, and occupying a vast building with iron girders and shops, exhibits of all kinds, were installed some of the most active retail activities of the new economic policy. Here one could buy almost anything in necessities and luxuries from Western markets and the aisles were crowded. One afternoon I visited Radek of the executive committee in a room in the Kremlin in vast disorder. Books, pamphlets, a wide couch bed, a desk, a table, a typewriter, chairs, tobacco and magazines, not a storehouse, but a workshop. He was a spare man, almost insignificant, but with good eyes, pleasant voice, and encyclopedic knowledge. He talks English, French, and of course, Russian. His English had a strong accent, but he was good and fluent. We talked of races and racial minorities, of the 600 Chinese students in Russia, and how hard they work, of the returning power of Germany and the restoring of her colonies. He was much interested in American Negroes and incensed at the Negro-hating trade unions. He believed in the rapprochement of the colored peoples. He came with me to the gate of the Kremlin. His wife and little girl are in this country. We revolutionists cannot afford large families. We must be on the go. Later, I had tea with this family. The Kremlin is a thing unique fortress and royal residence set on a low hill, gleaming under gilded copula and pointed Italian towers and clasped by a vast brick wall with swallow-tailed battlements. It is a magnificent jumble of times and things, powers, 
tyranny, wealth, war, religion, murder, jealousy, and revolution. I saw here something of the glory of the czars of Russia and the Russian church, including the magnificent service which Catherine the Great gave to her favorite Orlov, the clothing of czars and finest of silver and gold jewels and pearls, swords, scepters, ivory in all forms, clocks, watches, crown jewels, mirrors and tables, a riot of glory and of wealth and beauty. The extravagance was tempting. The icon plastered and inscribed with gold pearls and diamonds, cathedrals and palaces crowded together and the cathedral of the czars crowning all with its lofty arches and wealth of jewels and paid for by starving workers and peasants. Over the Kremlin lurks the spirit of Ivan the Terrible and his broken bell and the tower opposite, the denuded statue of the assassinated Alexander II, and the czars in magnificent madness. Catherine is there too, her carriages, her silver, her gifts. There is a beautiful old and Byzantine palace from whose roof Napoleon saw Moscow burn and the marble statue of himself, which he, tug which he lugged to Moscow, but had to run and leave. Last night, we were in a self-governed school session. Children, some 200 from 13 to 17 years of age, boys and girls had a glorious time. They had a wallpaper with news. They laughed, shouted, and played tag. Finally, they took their places on benches in fairly quiet order. There is a presidium of four with one girl. A black-haired boy rose to deliver the chief address. Could he speak 40 minutes, he asked diffidently. No, was the cry. They allowed 30 and finally 35 minutes. In a matter-of-fact way, he in a matter-of-fact way, he told of the origin of the youth movement in Russia, how other organizations had fallen away from the communist ideals, how the pioneers differed from the scouts, how they must strive for world unity and against war. They sang the internationals with saluting hands. The other spoke. One boy told of what had been done to ward off tyranny and bureaucracy, a little lad of 13 and a girl made speeches. They finally invited the principal of the school to address them. He criticized their late beginning and poor singing. Then they staged a play impromptu Russia, red flagged and distressed. The communist cadets ran to her aid. Boys and girls represented Italy, Germany, France, and Spain. One represented the small nationalities of Russia and spoke bro broken Russian. Another represented America talking of money and checks. There followed gymnastics, the girls bare-legged and in bloomers, then questions and answers, dancing and singing, joy, enthusiasm, noise, and lovely deference to and ignoring of the strangers present. A beautiful evening with children of workers. I saw parts of the 10th celebration of Youth Day in Moscow. Today, 200,000 children and youth with more grown-ups marched through the Red Square. Russians of all sorts and kinds, 102 Chinese, Tartars, Caucasians, Turks, two or three Negroes, an extraordinary demonstration. First, several thousand delegates from the provinces stood in the square 
and listen to speeches from commissars and guests. Then the marching began and lasted two hours. Red streamers and mottos were carried, uniforms and everyday clothes. Some of the vagabond children in rags were singing and marching. It looked like an enthusiastic voluntary mass movement, tremendous in size and deep in belief. There are many groups of athletes, bare-legged boys and girls, splendid, powerfully limbed. One group of Chinese were in native costume. I never saw a greater variety of Russian types, all aggressively working class and glorifying in it. In the afternoon at the fairgrounds, they were at it again, marching and playing. Some little horseplay, but no, roughless, no roughness and no de degeneracy. Yesterday, my last in Moscow, we went at one o'clock to a people's court, a clean square white room with wooden benches, a table draped in red, a judge, two assessors, and a clerk. It was well filled with people. The judge was intelligent without airs. The assessors seemed ordinary common people. They listened but said nothing. The case was a labor dispute. The coal carriers who supplied engines had too far to walk with their coal and it ruined their clothes. They wanted state uniforms and pay for those which ought to have been furnished since 1925. A railroad man testified and the judge and all debated, the judge directing the talk. All stood within the rail around the table. There is no Bible nor swearing of witnesses. The case was carried over. The next case had lawyers and was postponed because of absence of witnesses. After the court, I visited the secretary of the trade union central organization of the USSR in a huge office building. There are 23 unions of workers of all Russia with 90% of all wage earners as members. The Biennial Congress had 1,800 delegates, one for each 10,000 members. State central organizations had delegates in proportion to institutions represented. These elect national delegates who are uninstructed. Industries, not trades, are represented and all, and all in a given industry join. Transfer from industry to industry is allowed. Sweepers as well as skilled workers are all in the same union and each with one vote. Strikes against managers occur sometimes and are arbitrated. There are 9 million wage earners and the number is increasing rapidly with increasing industrialization. All factories are now in use, but some with poor machinery. New factories are being constructed. But after all, Moscow is the center of bureaucracy. Real Russia lies outside. I had always wanted to go to Nizhny Novgorod, far out on the Volga. I wanted to see the Ukraine. Once at Kiev, I started to return through Poland and Berlin, but scanning my geography, I figured out a bit of almost impossible romance at no greater cost and said to myself, why not return by the Black Sea in Constantinople and Greece, Naples, and Gibraltar? I hesitated. It seemed almost fantastic, and yet at last I ventured. First, I went to Nizhny Novgorod, tempted by the name which I remembered from my boyhood, 
and wishing too to get near to the geograph near the geographical heart of this vast land. It was a long, hard rail ride, and in some ways disturbing. The name of the city was soon changed to Gorky for awful, awful reasons which I did not then in the least comprehend. The city at the head of the majestic Volga, full of historic associations, suddenly seemed to mean but one thing to me, war and its pitiful aftermath. To be sure, the broad and once beautiful and prosperous center of a worldwide trade was reeling to its feet. I saw schools and factories, some buildings and trade and commerce starting to re revive down the river. But chiefly, I saw people shattered and torn by a war, which I, smug which I smugly imagined had ended nearly a decade ago. The wild and savage forays of Denikin and Kolchak on their dash to Moscow packed by British gold and American food, lived again in the battered walls and torn streets of this key city between Asia and Western Russia. Can I just say something just by way of explanation? You know, as he got further into the heart of Russia, away from Moscow and Leningrad, you know, he goes to the city Ninji Novgorod, which had been named after the Russian novelist Maxim Gorky. Uh, and he, you know, he said, why would you do that? But anyway, um, he, um, he begins to see the devastation of World War I and the Civil War. The two names that he mentions, Denikin and Kolchak, uh, were generals in the counter-revolutionary armies that were backed by Britain and the United States. Uh, a lot of people don't know that after the revolution, for about um, uh, maybe uh, four years, there was a civil war in Russia. Uh, and it was as, in uh, many ways, as bloody as uh, World War I was for Russia. So it's a war-torn country. And he sets this up again because what does a, uh, a socialist government led by communist party, what does it do to rebuild this country? So he's saying, you know, and then he talks about, I want to, this again, you know, uh, these great palaces um, in Moscow and Leningrad. Um, he talked about this museum, the Hermitage, which in Leningrad, which was previously known as the Winter Palace. And it was an unbelievable uh, palace for the czar and his family. Um, but that was turned into a museum. The Kremlin, the Kremlin wall, it's a walled off part of the city, which under the czars became the center of government and administration. Uh, but when you talked about government in Russia prior to the revolution, you were also talking about the unity of the Russian Orthodox Church and its hierarchy with the government. So within the walls of the Kremlin, the Kremlin is the seat of government, the center of Moscow. You had churches, but you also had palaces for the czars and dukes and other people. And it was a place of enormous and obscene riches. The people always suffered. 
and war and revolution brought more suffering. Uh, and he saw this as he got to the heart of the country, that part of Russia where Asia meets Europe. And by the way, when and he talks, whenever he's talking about Russia, you might notice that when he's describing the people, he's describing Mongols, Chinese, Caucasians, which doesn't mean what it means over here. It means people from the Caucasus part, not white people as such. Um, so when they say Caucasian, it's not the same as what we are talking about. But and this is real, you go to, this, to Russia today, it is as much Asian as it is European. And even people who for us, and let us say the United States, would appear to be white, when, when you're there and you actually see them, they might have white skin, but Asian fe features like their eyes, their noses, their mouths, you know? So it's this great mixture of people, um, a hundred nationalities or more, uh, all of these languages, uh, and then after the war and after the Civil War, suffering the devastation of war. So he's setting up this very complicated situation. Could I just say one thing in relation to that? Mm -hmm. um, it strikes me also in, ter in terms of Russia, I mean, Russian is not the only language that's spoken there, but there are all of these other minor languages which um, are connected to Indian languages. Yeah. And during the Soviet Union, you had all of these um, Indologists, but I guess it's not in the same epistemological framework as the Westerners are studying Indology or Egyptology even. And so what's so striking about Du Bois is saying here is just the construction of knowledge itself and how scholarship worked under the Soviet Union. But the second point was Buddhism in Russia. I mean, religion, religion is so interesting in uh, Russia because you have the spread of Buddhism there and the conversion of many of the other groups, especially in the southern parts to Islam at one point. Then you have the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is not Western. So it is, it is more Asiatic yeah. than it is. Um, so that was all I wanted to say. Okay, I'm going to continue reading. So we're on page 33 now. And gleaming through the rubble appeared the church. I can see yet that gem of a cathedral, tiny, narrow, but elegant and utterly beautiful, jeweled and decorated with the rich voices of priests still intoning, with faded Christ and Virgin peering mistily out of, a rich, out of rich dark walls, and without a city stricken by civil war and foreign invasion. So far from help that all seemed lost, even when the miracle came, and Moscow hurled the invaders into the Black Sea. <clears throat> it was a cold, hard trip back to Moscow, 
but with it went the thrill of realizing how near the West had come to conquering Russia and stopping the crucial effort to make socialism work and how completely it had failed. It turned next to Kiev. The sunflowers of Russia were blooming in the black Ukraine. The poet Shvetchenko and his black American friend, Ira Aldridge, Aldridge lived in my memory. We crossed the sandbar Dnieper, a great tower rising before us with small turrets of gold and white wall, wide white walls. We saw the low flaring domes of the city. Physically, Kiev is fantastic. The Dnieper almost knots itself around it and the city rises plane on plane, each one at angles with the other, all facing different fronts and all apparently unseen, none heard of by the other. It gives the impression of three or four independent cities in juxtaposition and yet not neighbors for their streets never apparently meet nor mingle. We went to Polytechnic with 2,500 students and well-equipped laboratories for research. Then to the Lenin School for Abandoned Children where 1,000 children are maintained at a cost of $135,000 a year. The children come voluntarily on a week's trial and then are sifted and distributed to one, four and seven year courses with shops, common boarding and division into circles of common living, recreation, etc. Club rooms and theaters are furnished and most of the pupils look happy. 10 or 12 run away each year and do not return. I visited an old fortified monastery with its great towers and clouds of golden domes. A charming lady who spoke French showed us the museum and underground catacombs with tombs and bodies, a curious and gruesome sight. There are some icons of the sixth to the 11th century and chests with complicated looks. There were beautiful vestments. Oh, the money spent on vestments in Tsarist Russia. You should see the Ukraine in its beauty, said Madame, well-bred and a bit pitiful in manner. She had many memories. The day was gray, slightly leaden aloft. The Dnieper was a brown stream and the purple steps shelved away into blurred shadows. I'm sure the Ukrainian spring must have a startling beauty. In the cities, the land, the home questions are difficult to estimate. There are some new one family houses. I saw a building in Nizhny Novgorod and the outskirts of other cities, some large apartment houses for a hundred or more families with one to four rooms are building in Moscow in Nizhny Novgorod. In most cases, people are swarming in buildings once built for the rich. Odessa is decidedly Western in aspect, even more than Kiev, with few domes and none of gold with great square blocks of Yellowstone houses. One saw the peasant costumes of the Ukraine and people, gay, careless, fairly well satisfied, although I suspect much complaint from the former well-to-do. And the merchant and marine workers of Odessa must complain. There is a wide sweep of the Black Sea. I walked beside it hours today. The shore plunges down in ruined wall and ravine and the dark water gleams below. There is a statue of Pushkin from Grateful Odessa, 
a beautiful opera house, once a work of consummate art. I saw the steps and bridges of the battleship Pont Pontinkin. Yes. Odessa is an imposing city from the sea. Even its harbor is empty and in disrepair. Even if its harbor is empty and in disrepair. We slipped out of the harbor with red flag flying, turned sharply to the right and sailed on the dull gray black sea along the way of the golden fleece from Byzantium to Greece. We sailed long quiet days and nights until suddenly Constantinople flames in the morning sun. The towers of gold clean and high, the vast ugly magnificent bulk of Saint Sophia, the grace and mounting beauty of the magnificent Suleiman. I remember that civilization came to Russia from Constantinople. Greek Orthodox fleeing from Islam rested and grew in Kiev and Moscow. The iconoclast drove the icon to Russia. Saint Sophia and the East developed the dome churches and overlaid them with gold. Visitors rich and near rich will prefer Constantinople to Moscow. Shops here are full of luxuries for the rich. Women are silk clad and for sale. The world is ordered for the well-to-do. In Moscow, there are few prostitutes and few luxuries for sale. It is on the contrary, a straight, almost grim region of poorly clothed people and a terribly earnest attempt to erect a world of and by the workers. Beggars, there are beggars in most cities, but in Constantinople, they are a permanent stereotyped popular institution with signs for explanation and arrangement. In Russia, they are a dwindling remnant. It is on its economic problem that Russia in 1926 must primarily be judged. Russia had established a socialistic state. The world had long been veering towards socialism. We had made essays towards socialism, but when the socialist state, socialistic state appeared full-fledged, most of us called it by other names and refused to judge it by its socialism, but rather we insisted on investigation of the ethics of the methods underlying its establishment. What had Russia done in 1926 to establish a socialistic state? First, it had nationalized the land. Every inch of land in Russia, the air above it and the resources beneath belong to the Russian state. Person who wish to till the soil may have as much land as they can successfully till. With the labor of their own family and with the death of the father, the children may have first chance at tillage of the same soil. Preference as to kind and place of soil goes to the former users of any particular piece. The mineral and oil rights may be farmed out by the government for a term of years, but the government retains ownership of mines and wells and the terms of the leases are limited. Improvement on the land, houses on farms and homes of the dwellers belong to the builders if they cost less than about $15,000. If more, their ownership goes to the state after 49 years. The state either conducts industry itself or sets the levels of private enterprise. All of the fundamental industries, manufacture of steel and iron, preparation of foodstuffs and clothing, 
Most of the exporting industries like coal mining and so on are conducted as state-owned trusts. The work of distribution of the products of these industries in order to provide foreign industries is conducted fully by the state, the great cooperative stores and by direct sale, and it is partly open to private enterprise. The scope of private enterprise is therefore mostly confined to imported luxuries or near luxuries. The government conducts education on a broad scale, not simply common school and elementary training training, but also higher and universal training, industrial training and techniques of all grades, as well as general social education and information, including newspapers, radio, news collection, and the like. It, is, it also undertakes day nurseries, child refugees, orphanages, old age and motherhood pensions, workers' vacations, and so on. All this requires enormous capital, a widespread bureaucracy of intricate administration and individual effort of a high order. How far is this extraordinary effort successful? The peasants are elevated with their access to the land but they have low production because of ignorance, antiquated methods, and lack of machinery and markets. This the government is meeting partly by general and special education. Schools are being established slowly but in considerable numbers. But here already in 1926 loomed trouble. I sensed it when in Leningrad, our Ishvarshnik peasant turned cabbie for the winter pointed to a tractor in the suburban fields near an agricultural experiment station. See there, he said, waste of money. They have tried to teach the peasants of my village to use such contraptions. It wouldn't work. I put my horse in and pulled them out. Never on so broad a side has an attempt been made to reach and civilize the country districts of a vast land and raise the rural economy to a level with the urban. The city is trying to help by entertaining peasant visitors. Peasant hotels are being established. I saw the vast one in Moscow and I visited one in Nizhny Novgorod. Children, students, and workers are sent to the country on vacations. Cooperation is taught and attempted in machinery. Markets and model farms are being established. Soil investigation goes on. But all this merely scratches the surface. Russia is a wide, expansive land. The peasants are widely scattered. Some land is rich, some is very poor. In general, their winter is terrible and floods and famine must be faced now and then. Meantime, Russia is at work. God, how these officials work. Comrade H spends six hours in office and six to eight hours in inspection and lectures. The assistant to Lunar Chesky the Secretary of Trade Unions, the head of the Mosselerion, the Mosselerion, all are men working to the limit and even failing in health. One day I talked with the head of democratic education. He had finished a hard Saturday morning, committees, phone calls, callers, and clerks. We came at 2.30 in the afternoon and about three, he began to talk and explain clearly until five. Comrade Elena worked six hours in the office and eight in the field, committees, lectures, inspections, but on the building goes. 
Finally, if Russia fails, reason and industry fails. If Russia succeeds, gradually every modern state will socialize industry and the greater the Russian success, the less revolution. All the polite culture and grace of high society and wealth of Russia are in exile with their disbelief in and contempt for democracy, bearing testimony against Soviet Russia in places of influence throughout the world. The tremendous task of maintaining the dictatorship of the communist and keeping inner disagreement from disrupting it is met by denouncing, by criticism and discussion of problems of policy. Shall a surplus of income go to wages or to state-owned capital? To necessities or to general culture? But at least they are openly discussing such problems, which are problems of every state, but usually decided among us by war or strike without reasonable discussion. Nowhere in modern lands can one see less of the splendor of the spender and the consumer, the rich owners and buyers of luxuries, the institutions which cater to the idle rich. One sees in Moscow, Leningrad, and Kiev neither first-class hotels nor luxurious restaurants, neither private motor cars nor silk stockings nor prostitutes. All these insignia of the great modern city are lacking. On the other hand, the traveler misses the courtesy and savoir faire which one meets in the hotel corridors of London and Paris. One misses the smart shops and well-groomed men and women who are so plentiful in Constantinople and Berlin. Does this mean that Russia has put over her new psychology? Not by any means. She's trying and trying hard, but there are plenty of people in Russia who still hate and despise the workingmen's blouse and the peasant's straw shoes, and plenty of workers who regret the passing of the free-handed Russian nobility who miss the splendid pageantry of the czars and who cling doggedly to religious dogma and superstition. There must be in Russian dis Russia dishonest officials and inefficient statesmen. But here Russia has no monopoly. There are those in Russia and outside of Russia who say that the present effort cannot succeed for exactly the same reasons that men said the bourgeoisie could never rule France. But it is the organized capital of America, England, France, and Germany, which is chiefly instrumental in preventing the realization of the Russian workingman's psychology. It has used every modern weapon to crush Russia. It sent against Russia every scoundrel who could lead a mob and gave him money, guns, and ammunition. And when Russia nearly committed suicide in crushing the civil war, modern industry began the industrial boycott. The refusal of capital and credit, which is being carried on today just as far as international jealousy and greed will allow. And can we wonder if modern capital is owned by the rich and handled for their power and benefit, can the rich be expected to hand it over to their avowed and actual enemies? On the contrary, if modern industry is really for the benefit of the people, and if there is an effort to make the people the chief beneficiaries of industry, why is it that the same people is powerless today to help this experiment, or at least give it a clear way? On the other hand, so long as the most powerful nations in the world are determined that Russia must fail, there can be but a minimum of free discussion and democratic difference of opinion in Russia. Hmm.
There is world struggle then in and about Russia, but it is not simply an ethical problem as to whether or not the Russian revolution was morally right. That is a question which only history will settle. It is not simply the economic question as to whether or not Russia can conduct industry on a national scale. She is doing it today and in so doing, she differs only in quantity, not in quality from every other modern country. It is not a question merely of dictatorship. We are all subject to this form of government. The Russian question is, can you make the worker and not the millionaire the center of modern power and culture? If you can, the Russian revolution will sweep the world. One can stand on the streets of Moscow and Kiev and see clearly that Russia has struck at the citadels of the power that rules modern countries. Not manhood suffrage, women's suffrage, state regulation of industry, social reform, nor religious and moral teaching in any modern, in modern country has shorn organized wealth of its power as the Bolshevik revolution has done in Russia. Is it possible to conduct a great modern government without autocratic leadership of the rich? The answer is, this is exactly what Russia is doing today. But can she continue to do this? This is not a question of ethics or economics. It is a question of psychology. Can Russia continue to think of the state in terms of the workers? This can happen only if the Russian people believe and idealize the working man as the chief citizen. In America, we do not. The ideal of every American is the millionaire, or at least the man of, quote, independent means or income. We regard the laborers as the unfortunate part of the com community, and even liberal thought is directed toward emancipating the workingman by relieving him in part, if not entirely, of the necessity of work. Russia, on the contrary, is seeking to make a nation believe that work and work that is hard and in some respects disagreeable and to a large extent physical is a necessity of human life at present and likely to be in any conceivable future world that the people who do this work are the ones who should determine how the national income from their combined efforts should be distributed. In fine, that the workingman is the state, that he makes civilization possible and should determine what civilization is to be. For this purpose, he must be a workingman of skill and intelligence, and to this combined and Russian education is being organized. This is what the Russian dictatorship of the pro proletariat means. This dictatorship does not stop there. As the workingman is today neither skilled nor intelligent to any such extent as his responsibilities demand, there is within his ranks the Communist Party, directing the proletariat toward their future dictatorship. This is nothing new. In this government of the people, we have elaborate and many-sided arrangements for guiding the rulers. The test is, are we in Russia really preparing future rulers? In so far as I could see, in 1926 in shop and in school, in the press and on the radio, in books and lectures, in trade unions and national congresses, Russia is, we are not. Visioning now a real dictatorship of the proletariat, two questions follow. Is it possible today for a great nation to achieve such a worker's psychology? 
And secondly, if it does achieve it, what will be its effect upon the world? The achievement of such a psychology depends partly upon Russia and partly upon the United States and the Western part of Europe. In Russia, one feels today, even on a casual visit, the beginning of a working men's psychology. Workers are the people that fill the streets and live in the best houses, even though these houses are dilapidated. Workers crowd, literally crowd the museums and theaters, hold the high offices, do the public talking, travel in the trains. The Soviet program is mainly psychological. Can a people be trained to work effectively with the general prosperity as the motive? and the fear of poverty and old age taken away. The present generation of lazy, indifferent and inefficient workers were trained under capitalism. Their psychology will change slowly. Leisure and taking away of the fear of poverty will mean to them loafing, laziness and self-assertion. To a large extent, the tremendous strain of the transition period. The Soviets have had war after war, conquest after conquest and famine, and but three years of experiment. Can the Soviets conquer jealousy and envy on the part of the workers? Yes, they, they answer by giving them necessities. But how about luxuries? By raising a public opinion against luxuries. There's something like this now. Moscow has no well-dressed leisure class. But it is a hard job and you and I, who have been trained to distrust human nature and believe in selfishness and lust, may easily believe a task impossible. Sometimes we seem to be right. There's no question but that governments can carry on business. Every government does. Whether governmental industry compares inefficiency with private industry depends entirely upon what we call efficiency. And here it is and not elsewhere that the Russian experiment is astonishing and new and of fateful importance to the future of civilization. What we call efficiency in America is judged primarily by the resultant profit to the rich and only secondarily by the results to the workers. The face of industrial Europe and America is set toward private wealth, that is, toward the people who have large income. We recognize the economic value of small incomes mainly as a means of profit for great incomes. Russia seeks another psychology. Russia is trying to make the workingman the main object of industry. His well-being and his income are deliberately set as the chief ends of organized industry directed by the state. I leave one subject to the last of my 1926 observations of Russia, religion. I live two months opposite the inscription of the second house of the Soviets written by Lenin. Quote, religion is the opium of the people. Whatever was true of other lands, this was certainly true in Russia in 1926 and before. Symbols of religion dominated the city from the vast five domes of the Cathedral of Christ, a greater and four lesser, five crosses, a greater and four lesser, and gilded lace-like chains which held them. It cost $200,000 a year to gild the cathedral. The 350 other churches of the city dominated the landscape as they loomed and glowed. There are gems of beautiful bejeweled churches. There are hordes of priests intoning litanies, litanties begging alms for giving sins. 
There were thousands of shrines. One of the most striking of Russian pictures which I saw was Vanstinzov's Last Judgment with conventional angles, angels, Christ and God. But the heaven in the background were the golden domes of Moscow. Only one who hears the chant of a Russian service sees its color and genuflections. Only those who know the gorgeous litany and the beautiful Russian churches can realize what Lenin meant when he called Russian when he called the re Russian religion opium. But it was worse than opium. It was the Russian priest, Father Petrov, who said in 1908, there is no Christian czar and no Christian government. Conditions of life are not Christian. The upper classes rule the lower classes. A little group keeps the rest of the population enslaved. This little group has robbed the working people of wealth, power, science, art, and even religion, which they have also subjected. They have left them only ignorance and misery. In the place of pleasure, they have given the people drunkenness. In the place of religion, gross superstition. And beside, the work of a, the work of a convict, a work without rest or reward. The ruling regular clergy with its cold, heartless, bony fingers has stifled the Russian church killed its creative spirit, chained the gospel itself, and sold the church to, to the government. There is not an outrage, no crime, no perfidy of the state authorities, which the monks who rule the church would not cover with the mantle of the church, would not bless, would not seal with their own hands. The British Trade Union Report of 1925 says, the holy shrines at all the main street corners of the large cities are still open and well patronized. Priests in the dress of their calling are still seen about, a street, about the streets. A very strong propaganda in the press, the schools, colleges, and trade union clubs is, however, carried on against religion generally, and especially as practiced by the old Orthodox Church. The kissing of crosses and icons is prohibited by the Ministry of Health as being accountable for the spreading of infectious diseases especially consumption and syphilis. The practice, however, still survives. Though long queues of infected children waiting to receive the sacrament from the same chalice are no longer seen. The remains of certain saints whose bodies were supposed to be preserved intact and those forehead was exposed through an aperture in the lid of the coffin to be kissed by thousands of pilgrims have been exposed to public view as dust and bones, while the supposed forehead was shown to be but a puckered piece of leather fastened to the coffin lid. The former government-controlled licensed houses of prostitution, where girls were exposed for hire at a recognized fee, have been closed. In Sara's days, these houses were a recognized government institution. The opening ceremony was undertaken by a police officer and the premises blessed by Russian Orthodox priests. One thing was certain, if there was to be a Russian revolution, it had to begin by the donation of the church by the state, by the domination of the church by the state. There is one thing I remember from this visit of 1926. It was not vivid at the time, but came back to me later. It was the admiration which the Russians had for the United States. Chiefly, it was naturally the envy of our marvelous technique, our mastery of natural forces, and the deft way we turned them to our will. 
I remember somewhere in mid-Russia being shown through a vast regular repair factory for locomotives. Amid all sorts of difficulties and scarcities, engines were being repaired and built. It was a miracle of desperately hard work with only fair accomplishment. The director had a right to be proud and was, but he said apologetically, of course, it's nothing compared to what you do in your Pittsburgh. The Russians in 1926 were determined to believe that the fundamental American democracy, bursting up from a land of workers who had freed slaves and made the lowly rich, would eventually sympathize with and support the struggling Russian state. Just as in 1789, they hailed free France and in 1848 welcomed the victims of repression. They knew or thought they knew that in the end, America would clasp hands with the USSR. It happened that just before I went to Russia, a delegation of nine workers representing the British Trade Union Congress left London early in November, 1924 and spent two months in sightseeing and study. The report of conditions at nearly the same time as I made my notes serves to confirm in my mind the fairness of my observations. I venture to quote a few paragraphs. Quote, the Soviet system at present consists of a series of compromises, most of them in constant change. One of the most striking characteristics of the present regime is its readiness to recognize failure. Should a communist theory fail to give the required results, it is scrapped for all practical purposes as ruthlessly as any czarist tradition. On the other hand, should ideas of institutions or individuals associated with the old order prove useful instruments, there is no hesitation in using them. For all opposition is as yet silenced, but the need of it is not so much felt owing to the extraordinary candor and criticism of these conducting, those conducting affairs and their readiness to conform their policy to new requirements of the moment. The constant elections and discussions at Congresses keep those in power in touch with opinion, while the continuous stream of official publications and pronouncements keeps opinion informed of any defects that may develop in the system and of the proposals for reform. In fact, the critical functions of an opposition both in the press and on the platform are largely performed by the government itself. The speeches of political leaders are generally critical lectures on economics, not the appeals to passion and partisanship that are found necessary elsewhere. As to the persistent assertions in the press that the present regime in Russia is a reign of terror, the delegation would wish to put on record its conviction that this could not be honestly believed by any unprejudiced person traveling within the union and talking to its citizens. The report dated 1925 concludes, in view of the information contained in the preceding chapters, all of which has been obtained by themselves from sources and through channels that convince them as to its general accuracy, the delegation has come to the following conclusion, that the USSR is a strong and stable state, that its government is based firstly on a system of state socialism that has the active support of a large majority of the workers and the acceptance of an equally large majority of the peasants. And secondly, on a federal structure that gives very full cultural and very full fair political toleration. That the machinery of government, though fundamentally different from that of other states seems to work well. And that the government it gives is not only in every way better than anything that Russia has ever yet had, 
but that it has done and is doing work in which older state systems have failed and are still failing. That these good results have reconciled all but a very small majority to renouncing rights of opposition that are essential to political liberty elsewhere. And that this causes no resistance, partly because these rights have been replaced by others of greater value under the Soviet system, and partly because recent movements have been steadily towards their restoration. And finally, that the whole constitutes a new departure of the greatest that is well worth foreign study and a new development that may be greatly benefited by foreign assistance. But here, here in the white silence of the dawn before the womb of time, with bowed hearts all flame and shame, we face the birth pangs of a world. We hear the stifled cry of nations all but born, the wail of women ravished of their stunted brood. We see the nakedness of toil, the poverty of wealth. We know the anarchy of empire and doleful death of life. In hearing, seeing, knowing all we cry. Save us, world spirit, from our lesser selves. Grant us that war and hatred cease. Reveal our souls in every race and hue. Help us, O human God, in this thy truce to make humanity divine. Well, there's a, there's a lot to discuss in that chapter, and hopefully our listeners will also be commenting their observation and responses to what we read. Um, but, uh, Doc, is there anywhere particular you wanted to start? Uh, well, I want to thank Michelle for reading it. I mean, that's it's not uh, easy. Uh, so thank you very, very much, very intelligently done. But um, there, there are certain things, I just wanna start somewhere near the end where he talks about a change in the psychology of the uh, Russian people. And I think what he's getting at here is this idea that you put the general well-being ahead of your own selfish or personal well-being. Uh, and he felt that that was, you know, like he said, you know, the Russian government, uh, the Soviet government at that time of 1926 was devoting uh, a whole lot of energy towards this change in psychology. Uh, obviously, it's something that is not easily done. Um, and of course, all of the propaganda coming from the West, along with the military and, and other things to undermine the gov government is to always make the people skeptical about the possibility of a, uh, a one for all and all for one or collective psychology. Um, capitalism, and especially capitalism in the United States uh, always makes this uh, billionaire uh, into some sort of heroic uh, individual and role model for everybody. And this psychology pollutes and infects every aspect of culture and life in the West, in art, in music, in literature, uh, 
and on and on. So to change that is the huge thing. Now, of course, uh, in part, Lenin said that such a change was possible from a quote, backward part of the world, a backward proletariat in uh, if there is a life-changing catastrophe, such as war, such as economic uh, collapse. And that to build from the ruins of that made it possible to develop a new psychology and a new civilization. So I think that is something to consider uh, for our times, given how traumatized and anxious and fearful tens of millions of Americans are. Out of this, uh, could the opposite of what those who advocate for the fourth industrial revolution and the capitalist reset are claiming that, well, don't worry because we have Facebook. Uh, you don't have to have real friends. You can have friends on Facebook or on Twitter. You know what I'm saying? So uh, that uh, digit digitized e economy and society is their way of answering the problems of trauma, of uh, fear, of uh, alienation, and all of the psychological issues that go with it. And we see them all over the place uh, at this time. Uh, one would suggest that if you look at China uh, and the way it is evolving, and you know, um, uh, Emily has you know recently acquainted me with some of the recent speeches of Xi Jinping, the leader of China and the head of the Communist Party, where he is talking about ancient values and beliefs that are connected to Confucius and Buddha uh, and, and such and making these available and deploying them in this period of rapid transformation and growth in China. Uh, so the question of psychology, of the way people think, their mindsets, the way that we would call it a mindset, if it can be more predisposed towards collectivity and not towards individualism. Um, the other thing um, is, uh, can the working class become the state? Huge question. Uh, and if you take where we are today in the United States, uh, you know, we're on going into 2021, uh, one of the things we could, we could argue, and I think we've argued this in the free school, is that there is a crisis of the state, uh, which is another way of talking about a crisis of legitimacy, a crisis of governance, a crisis uh, uh, defined by the ruling elite being unable to rule the people in the old way and the people not uh, subordinating themselves uh, to the rule of the elites. Uh, this, um, you know, this is uh, manifested in poll after poll by reputable research centers such as Pew, the Pew Research Center, 
which uh, showed um, in polls going back to 2017 through 2019 that 85% of the American people say that the government does not serve their interests. Well, we know that from our daily lives and talking to people living in neighborhoods and communities, riding on buses. Everybody distrusts and is dissatisfied with the government and pretty much with the ruling class. I don't think there's any question about that. Which raises the question, uh, which is a, a bit abstract at this point, you know, what is abstract today is concrete tomorrow, or it, it's abstract until it isn't abstract any longer. But the question of, uh, can the working class become the state? Now, in um, Marxist and Leninist language, which Du Bois adopts, it is called the dictatorship of the proletariat as a negation of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Uh, but the way Du Bois uh, narrates it in the second chapter, I think it makes a lot of sense to people. Could there be a new democracy? Could, and he's asking in 1926, will the Bolsheviks be successful in winning the Russian peasants and workers to the idea of a new Russia, a Russia where the czars are not the state, where the church is not the state, but where working people are the state. And of course that goes along with the change of psychology, you know, because, I mean, you know, we know working people, we know people in a society like this, where there's just one way of thinking, uh, and there are questions that you can never ask that are out of bounds, uh, that you see that you're almost criminalized to ask if you ask them. Um, but the question, and this, and Du Bois says, this is a question for the epoch. Can working people become the state? Can a democracy, can this, let me put it this way. Can the state become a democratic institution serving the masses of people. And he calls that along with Lenin, a dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, du Bois will in Black Reconstruction call it a democratic dictatorship of the proletariat. Maybe an ironic way of stating it, but that was the language that was, and in a lot of ways still available to us, in talking about a new way of conceiving the state. A lot of people don't like the language. They feel that it does not, that it is, it is so, um, how could you put it, uh, so bold or, or audacious that uh, it, it strikes up against what they consider the democratic sensibilities of the masses of people. But nonetheless, uh, if we take the concept in its historic meaning, and as Du Bois was describing it, and we'll describe it further on in this text, it is a state that is both in the interest of working people, but a state constituted 
by working people. And then he talks about the democratic underpinnings of this new state in Russia. And he talks about the unions. And I forget the number, hundreds of thousands of unions, local committees, the debates, discussions, everybody's not getting a law. So he's talking about a substantive form of democracy, not just procedural democracy, which we have here. And that's why everything got, has to go through a court and you gotta get a lawyer because it's more about procedure than about substance. So he is saying that there is a, uh, a civil society, to use more current language, civil society of democratic discussion, debate, organization, and education. And that's why this thing of education, he talks about things that a lot of people never talked about or talk about when they talk about revolutionary uh, change in a society. He talked about libraries and museums. And, uh, you know, this is huge, huge. And this is only uh, nine years out from the, rev the revolution of October, you know? And then he talked about the youth organizations. And there were two principal youth organizations, the Young Pioneers, uh, which were like children, children's organizations. And then there was the Young Communist League, which were adolescents, young adults, and so on. Um, and the mobilization, and this again is very, very important. This tremendous mobilization of children and youth in the cause of peace and democracy and socialism. Could you imagine a positive organizing and mobilization of children with, with a great purpose to achieve in this society? It's the very opposite. So Du Bois is seeing this widening of civil society, of democratic discourse, of the involvement of people. And he's saying that you can't have this worker's state without the involvement in the day-to-day -day life of decision-making, of debate over policy, of organization, be it unions or women's organizations or uh, children, children's organization. My God, children's organization. Think about it. That's what uh, uh, Jake is always talking about, the children, children's organization. And then they graduate to youth organization. And the children's organizations are pretty much run by the children. Isn't that a revolutionary idea <laughs> that children will run their own organizations? You know? Um, and then he uh, finally... Um, well, the other thing in, in keeping with this, the elevation of work, even the hardest, most difficult work as honorable. And thus the person that does that work is an honorable hero of a society. And not just the way they're doing it today with COVID 
you know, oh, our frontline uh, workers, and you know, and we know these people are not serious about any kind of uh, elevation or praise of labor or of workers. But this turning of workers into the heroes and elite of society. Oh, by the way, when I was in the Soviet Union, they said that there was only one privileged class in their society, and that was children. It's just an un, I mean, what does that mean if children hear that all the time? From the time they're able to comprehend anything. You are the only privileged group in society. The society exists for you and your future. Wow, you know what I'm saying? And then the last thing is religion as the opiate of the people. Now, you know, you, I mean, it's, it's not so subtle the way Du Bois sets it up. He is saying that the Russian Orthodox Church and it's being fused with the czarist aristocracy was the opiate of the church. And, and what Du Bois says, I don't know whether you picked it up, but the spread of sexually transmitted diseases was in large measure uh, done by the church. And that churches and monasteries were as much centers of prostitution as anything. And these priests, people went into the priesthood to live comfortable, luxurious, debauched lives. Uh, and the church served uh, to, um, uh, to go along with this fantasy that the czar was God's representative on earth. Well, how do you know that? Well, the church said it's, it's so. Well, what makes the church the reservoir of truth? Well, it's an instrument of God, yada, yada, yada. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so it was. The church in Russia, uh, unlike, and this is very interesting, the Protestant tradition of the United States. Um, you know, I was brought up as a Baptist. Every Baptist congregation is its own thing. You, you know what I'm saying? Even though, you know, for black people, we have the National Baptist Convention. And then it was a split off from that, the uh, Progressive Baptist Convention. That was Martin Luther King and his followers. But even with that national convention or that national organization, each church preached its own interpretation of the Bible, raised its own money, paid its own bills. So you didn't have a central church. And part of the uh, clash, if you will, between Protestantism and Catholicism had to do with the idea that the Catholic Church had this overarching hierarchy that denied freedom of religion or re freedom of speech and so on. But the Eastern Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox Church was the Catholic Church in a lot of ways on steroids, uh, where the um, the Enlightenment and all of the wars that took place in Europe uh, after the 16th century kind of began to diminish the church and separate 
society from the control of the church in the West, uh, in Russia, it still had that feudal, medieval, what Du Bois called barbaric characteristic, where the church was as guilty as the czars and the landlords in the oppression of the people. So it was the opiate of the people. Now, but uh, I think as Divya just pointed out, there were more, there was more than just one religion in Russia. There was Judaism, there was Buddhism, uh, there was uh, Islam. And if you go to the Soviet Union, I remember meeting a woman who said to me, uh, I don't, she just, she said, I am a, um, I am of the Buryat tribe of Mongolians. I said, wow, that's deep. You know, I never heard of the Buryat tribe, you know, or I heard of Mongolians, I think. At that time, I was, I was poorly educated in my youth and probably now too, but, and she said she was a Buddhist and she was very proud of all of that. And um, uh, in, in the Asian parts of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, like in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, the stands that border Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan and all of those Central Asian parts uh, of the world. Um, well, they're Muslim, they're Buddhist, uh, and other religions, not to mention multiple languages. So by diminishing the wealth and power of the, of the Orthodox Church, you liberated religion in Russia. And that was very important, uh, as you can well imagine. So uh, this second chapter, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's Du Bois, quintessential Du Bois, as uh, Catherine pointed out, he is a protagonist taking us on a journey of discovery. And uh, he's, this is his 1926 visit. He will revisit uh, the Soviet Union in 1936. He'll talk about that uh, as he goes forward in the next chapter, which becomes really intense because he talks about the ideological struggle within the revolution to imagine a new nation, a different nation, rather than an oppressor nation and a nation that oppresses its people and others and all of that type of thing, a nation that is a beacon of freedom to its own people and to the world. And if that historic task can be achieved, a, a lot of people would differ with his idea that if the Russian model, which he, he, he describes as very simple, you know, not anything, you know, way out there, it's what human beings want, you know? And he, uh, he Du Bois will um, uh, describe Stalin. And this I got from my friend, Andrew Stewart. I really am grateful to him. He helps me understand a lot of things. Uh, he's not well known. He doesn't try to become a, uh, uh, how would you say, a social media superstar. But 
he, he compared Lincoln during and after the Civil War and Stalin. And his argument was, and by the way, very simple human beings, men, not grandiose in any respect. The idea that Stalin, with his deep, and Du Bois talks about Stalin's deep connection and knowledge of the ordinary Russian, how he was attempting to present, a, to develop a new nation and to win the Soviet people to this idea of a new nation. Well, in a lot of ways, post-Civil War in the United States is a different nation than before the Civil War. Lincoln had an idea of what this new nation should look like, not as developed as what Stalin had for the Soviet Union. But to envision a new nation, a nation so different from everything else in the existing world, in its values, in its state organization, in its economy, uh, and in the psychology, social psychology of its people. This would be a new nation that could influence the ideological direction of the world. And uh, Du Bois will say that Lenin is the great theorist of the overturning of the old system. And Stalin, a less learned, less theoretically developed uh, person uh, than Lenin was the one who must implement and further uh, uh, embody, or how would you say, uh, you know, put the details to this new nation. And Du Bois certainly saw the Soviet Union as a new type of nation. And therefore, when he makes a statement, if what I've seen uh, is Bolshevism, I'm a Bolshevik. Another way of saying that is, if what I've seen is communism, then I am a communist. Uh, well, I wanted to add, or Catherine, do you want to say something? I'm muted. Yeah. What I am impressed with is the uh, juxtaposition or the closeness that he uh, places his descriptions about the Tsarist Russia uh, and the church with that of the average worker and peasant. And that uh, just uh, plays out over and over and over in his descriptions. And as a uh, traveler on a quest, <laughs> he is not a naive traveler. That's he is a very expert traveler. Very learned. Saying to us, come with me while I explore this. Yeah. Uh, and given his history, who he is and what he has accomplished previous to this trip, 
Mm -hmm. uh, he is taking us on a journey as he explores, not as an innocent explorer, mm -hmm. but as a masterful explorer. And he is describing in language to us what he is seeing precisely so that we are, as we travel with him, understanding what he sees as he sees it. And I, I, I mean, th there was something he called the wealth of poverty. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I mean, the wealth of poverty, it says it all. And, and you understand what he means by it, given what he's described the, the of, of the, um, oh God, the churches and the, and, and, and the, um, where these uh, czarist folk lived and how they lived. Uh, and so you understood uh, uh, and could almost accept the fact that the working people and the peasants, you know, were still impoverished, but it was an impoverishment that would lead to something better for them. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it did not equal the impoverishment that they suffered under the czars. It was better then because it was leading to something that they all can collectively uh, 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 move into as they as they advance uh, the work of the workers and of the nation. So I I like chapter two very much. I I thought the journey became uh, much more explicit, and we kind of like so. Okay, this this man is taking us here and he knows and we're listening and we're seeing based on what he sees we're seeing through his eyes and we're understanding through his thoughts and, and i thought it was powerful um i just want to say that i think i mean doc you cover a lot of like ground in terms of like what why this chapter is so important. But I think one thing that really like stood out to me, like both in what you said and also what I noticed in the chapter is, um, I think we've talked about this before, but everything seems like very experimental. Like it's not like everything's coming out already fully formed that the new society is already um, existing and it just has to be refined. But I think towards the end, the poem that Du Bois has where the birth pangs of a new society is still rising. I mean, you can see the potential, but I mean, a lot of things still need to go through different revisions, but I mean, this, the way Du Bois writes about it, it seems very ethnographic, just how all these things are slowly being put into place, but that um, there's still a history that's being formed in the moment that mm -hmm. I, I feel like he recognizes really strongly. Yeah. You know, uh, can I just say something, Joe? I don't want to kind of... You know, just uh, to underline something that you're saying, you know, Du Bois talks about law and chance. It's kind of what uh, Hegel meant when he talked about freedom and necessity. Necessity is that which is predictable. Law, you know, in social and natural science is the realm of the predictable, um, where the pattern is repeating itself as it has been over and over again. Uh, chance or freedom is the realm of the unpredictable. And by freedom, we're not, I'm, I'm talking about freedom in a philosophical sense, 
by freedom we mean human agency, human imperfection, human everything. And I, 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 I think that's precisely what you're getting at, Caleb. And I like the concept of the ethnography of it. The, you know, the intimate observation. You know, everybody's talking about Russia. Du Bois says, well, I must go to Russia in order to make a determination of my position. And uh, yeah, and there's no, and like, I think he, he's implying, and he, he makes the same implication in chapter one, there are no firm guarantees that everything will turn out for the best. There's so much else going on. And, and that's why he feels that Stalin is so important in being, you know, that individual at the helm of things, guiding things forward, who is, whose vision is informed by his knowledge of ordinary people. I wanted to say that um, I thought I thought the chapter was kind of like Catherine had said, tremendously beautiful and so masterful in the way that Du Bois melds sociology with, you know, sociology, but then also philosophy and, you know, just a very artistic way of understanding and drawing the truth out from what he's seeing and it, it's given me, you know, a deep appreciation for what this great experiment in the Soviet Union represented and how he describes, and you had described Doc after the revolution of 1917, unfortunately, because of Western interference, like the Soviet Union still had to spend years resolving the, you know, like the pain and the contradictions of civil war. And that really they had only a few years to really begin to experiment. But then seeing, seeing all of the possibility, um, seeing what they were, you know, like the old values that they were shedding, striving to rebuild um, the, psycho the psychology of a, of a society around the worker. Um, mm -hmm. You know, seeing all of that movement and all of that possibility, um, it's just tremendously beautiful. And, you know, you can contrast it with this Western decadence and this Western stagnancy that we see today, which, um, which is what is generally seen by many people as beautiful. And it's just a completely different conception of um, what beauty is, you know? And yeah, it also made me think about what you had mentioned with how um, a lot of the working class in America because of the American assumption, like which Du Bois calls it, um, is trained to see themselves in the elite who, or, um, or to aspire toward the elite or to think that um, the elite are like the luminaries of a society. But instead in the Soviet Union in this time, you had, um, you had the upliftment of the worker and then also of the young person and the child because, um, because they were seen as holding the potential for reshaping, um, a genuine society centered around, you know, like the principle of humanity. And it's just, it's just so much more, um, it's just so much deeper and so much more human and so much more beautiful. And 
um, I think this is this is the right time to be looking to Russian America um, because you know of everything that is cracking and collapsing in the Western facade, um, and I think I think naturally it's a time when people want to know what is still possible because it feels like so many so many of um, so many of the options have already been exhausted. Um, so yeah, I, I also thought it was a very beautiful chapter. Yeah, I think same with, similar to Michelle, I think the first reaction is just an amazement at this experiment of Russia because even Du Bois at the beginning as he narrates his journey and what he sees across Russia, he, I think just the humility of which it's the humility, it's humility, but also, I mean, I think the scientist in him, when he says, I, I've only seen, I haven't seen all of Russia, but I've seen a part. And he says, I've traveled 2000 miles. Um, and like you were saying, doc, he only, a lot of what he focuses on is Moscow and Leningrad. But I mean, just the fact that Du Bois is saying, I've only seen a part of it yet. He's, he's seen, I mean, he talks about, he's gone to the factories, he's talked to civil servants, he's observing what's happening on the streets, he, he sees what's happening with the youth and the youth march and all these different ethnicities of people. It just gives you a sense of how large Russia is, this land that's so large. And I think it just paints a picture of almost how impossible um, an experiment like this can be. And it just gives you such a great appreciation for despite like how much the Russians themselves knew in some ways how impossible the task is, is how much they're willing to give for it. Um, and like and like Du Bois is saying, it's not really a question of economy or ethics even, it's a question of psychology. Um, and I feel like that a lot of that has to do with what ideals will you aspire towards? Um, and going back to, I mean, Caleb, you talked about the poem at the end. I was thinking about connecting the poem at the end to what Doc was saying earlier about how, how Lenin was called um, religion, like the Russian Orthodox Church as the opiate of the people, but also how important, how important it is um, of a task for there to be a new psychology. Um, and in some ways, I almost feel like what Russia is doing is like creating, trying to nurture a new religion in some ways. Um, and I feel like that's why at the end with the poem, Du Bois says, oh, human God. Um, I don't know, it's like a, it's a new religion of humanity and, and ideals of sacrifice, ideals of collectivism, like you said, and like Catherine was saying, people who are used to being poor, but this time, you know, being in poverty, you don't have the best clothes, you don't really have the best shoes, they're mismatched socks, they're lines for food, but people work so hard, they're content, there are, there are higher ideals they're working towards. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it's a new religion of humanity that's really inspiring. Uh, um, I'm also thinking about uh, Du Bois uh, as a person and, and as a scientist, how he's approaching this and how he, why, one reason this book is so important is because he is such a unique perspective and approach. Um, I mean, he writes in the beginning when we read last week that he was in his late fifties by the time he visited. Um, and so he had already spent many decades 
uh, as a scholar of democracy um, and race, but also as an educator involved in institutions like HBCUs and and NAACP and other places, which were meant to try to, um, you know, build people up, shape up uh, humanity and uh, Black humanity in, in particular. So he's very uh, attentive, I think, to how education is done, how training is done. And so uh, as, as uh, others have been saying, this point he's making about this attempt to build a working class that can be the state, that can be the basis for modern civilization um, and uh, is something he's very attentive to. And he's very attentive to the fact that there's so much focus on education, both formal education, schooling of children, uh, mm -hmm. teaching workers, but also this point he's making about libraries, museums, why that's so uh, important, so much emphasis on that. And, and in other places also where I've read him to discuss the Soviet Union, he talks about a, no society can really be quote unquote totalitarian if it's so focused on educating its people. Only a society that's trying to keep people <laughs> ignorant can really be totalitarian. Um, so, so that's something that struck me. And uh, also, yeah, this just this point that uh, the, the, the leadership of the Communist Party also that he's discussing how you, yes, you have this working class, but they, they have largely been trained under the old system. They've been schooled under the old system. They have the values of the old system. Thus, you have to have uh, a party to lead people mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, to, to educate, to design the education system, to identify the new values, to inculcate the new values. And all these are ideas which in, uh, you know, Western intellectuals I've pretty much dismissed as like laughable. Oh, how is that possible? That's, that's inane. That's, you know, leading to authoritarianism, et cetera, et cetera. But I just find it very interesting, the fact that the kind of unique way he's approaching it and taking it very seriously. And even compared to uh, other uh, Amer like white American and other Western Marxists that discuss their experience with the Soviet Union, I just find his approach very unique because he's much more attentive than them to the, these points about education and about values, as Emily was saying. I mean, really, in a lot of ways, you could discuss is an attempt to have a revolution of values, inculcate new values. And often that, ha that has been one of the big separations between Eastern uh, communism and Western ideas about socialism is that is the, the Western ideas of Marxism have often focused on luxury, abundance, whereas here you have this focus on hard work, transformation of values. And uh, even this point he makes about how you have a society which is poorly clothed, but you know maybe badly housed, but it is at least housed, is fed, but is very well educated. The yeah. the kind of priorities because a lot of the a lot of the times we see even now with the white left, they're they're so influenced by Western consumerism and mm -hmm. luxury and abundance, and they can't see how important this is. And people are often like, oh, the Soviet Union, it was so drab, etc. It was so humorless, but they don't see this point that yes, they may have lacked in material things. They emphasize hard work so much so that they could reach a level where everybody had a certain amount of basic material existence, but then they emphasize these non-material things so much. And for somebody like Du Bois who knows how the majority of humanity lives in the third world, the darker nations, the amount of poverty and ignorance that exists, the fact that this is, this is uh, these are the priorities for most people in the third world and for, 
and for poor humanity and black humanity in the United States, these are the priorities, you know, a, a, a level of basic material uplift and then, uh, you know, cultural, spiritual, artistic uh, development. These are all things that he's very uniquely able to identify uh, uh, from an American perspective mm -hmm. com compared to others and why I think for American readers, this is so uh, Im important. You were saying, Jahan, about how in the West, there's a certain, amongst like certain socialists and communists, there's an idea of, it's like the idea of a communist state or what will happen after revolution is pretty different from how you would read Russian America and how Du Bois is describing the Soviet Union. I was laughing because I've heard a lot, the sense I get from a lot of, like, especially young people nowadays who proudly call themselves communist, socialist, I feel like there's a sense of, Doc, you were saying that we have procedural democracy in the U.S. and there's not much focus on substance. I almost feel like it's kind of like procedural socialism where there's this idea that once we reach a communist state, no one has to work. Like the ideal we're working towards is where no one works. Like everyone is living a life of luxury, whereas in the Soviet Union, it's the complete opposite. It's like much less about reaching a state where everyone has access to the newest technology, luxury, whatever, and has much more to do with the substance of society itself. Um, I have a few thoughts about some, I mean, so long as, uh, you know, your point, Emily, about working, you know, so long as we have to eat, we have to work, and I think everything we do is work. Even if it's breathing, you know, listening, talking to one another, um, it's all work. And I don't think that we will be able to escape work until I guess we either evolve into a new state where we don't need food uh, or, um, you know, it, it's just, you know, work is inevitable of the human condition. Um, so I, I wondered about that point about communism. Um, the other question that I thought of I mean, so much of this goes back to what Gandhi was also saying about, uh, and that's what I was thinking about this whole time about socialism and communism of the West, which is, he says, based on certain conceptions, which are fundamentally different from ours. One such conception is their belief in the essential selfishness of human nature. I do not subscribe to that for I know that the essential difference between man and the brute is that the former can respond to the call of the spirit in him and can rise superior to the passions that he owns in common with the brute and therefore superior to selfishness and violence which belong to the brute nature and not to the immortal spirit of man. And this goes back, I think, to the question of religion and, and the state um, coming back to the West, where Christianity has been the stronghold of um, power, 
and everywhere around us we see this idea of of god of in god we trust you know it's on the money but then i always think of what christ said which is that you can't serve god and money at the same time and what you were saying doc about the orthodox church in in russia reminds me of what the american church was and is during king's time as king said 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in america but just like king's relation to the church you know you have du bois showing in this uh chapter that the russian the eastern orthodox church had become like that as the christian church had exerted a continues to exert a you know immense power over the masses um with no sense or with in a complete reversal i would say of Christ's teachings. Um, and as far as the church and the state, but then King and Gandhi, they never they both needed religion to change the mindset of the people. It would be impossible to lead the masses in the way that they did without God. I mean the divinity is, you know, in all of us, but God is this great ocean and we're waves in the ocean. And so as Sun Ra said, God's love is greater. God is greater than love can ever be. <laughs> in the sense of human love, you know, it it's, it's that great, the causeless cause. I like the fact that um... The boys spent time talking about the conditions uh, in the rural areas versus the urban areas. And that uh, is true today. It was true for Cuba and their revolution. It is a um, focus uh, in China. Uh, and I, I think that that is very, very powerful because a lot of times the emphasis has been and is on the urban uh, society and 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 leaving the rural society uh, uh, to uh, exist in in a, in a state of um, what do you want to call it? in a state of um, a disrepair when it doesn't have to be, mm -hmm. and so the emphasis, the equal emphasis on the uh, rural society 
to me is very, very important as it was as Du Bois saw it and as we should see it today. And as even Fidel and the Russian Revolution is seeing it and as it is being seen in China. So I thought that was an important point that he made. Yeah, I also, oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just gonna add on to that, what Catherine's saying about rural versus urban, because it also seems like the church, the Russian Orthodox church also, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they had a larger, like a stronger, strong, a stronger influence on the rural areas. Um, like I think Du Bois sometimes refers to it as superstition. And when Du Bois also talks about the challenges Russia's facing, like now that they've, they've taken state power, but you have to think about how to build a new Russia with the peasantry in the rural areas, there's a challenge of, it's true where um, they've been largely influenced by superstition. So how do you, like how, how do you also um, start to think about like, I don't know, just how the conditions are different in the rural areas and in industrial areas. Um, and, and I think the connection to Cuba too, I really like the, the comparison to Cuba because not just in the rural versus urban, but in general, because the first time I read this chapter, I really thought about people's descriptions of Cuba today. Um, and like in particular, I know this is a small detail, but when Du Bois talks about, and this is something Doc, you said, how the children are the privileged class, the only privileged class of the children. That part when Du Bois talks about how there's childcare for workers um, and how every day the physician comes to look at the children and they're given clean cotton aprons. And you know, this, you, can, you know that this is a poor, at this time it's a poor country. People don't have the best clothes or whatnot, but the children every day will get an egg and milk. Um, and it really reminded me of Cuba because I remember when Raju Nanta returned from Cuba, they talked about how they were given a cafecito and they, when they asked for milk, um, the person apologized and said, we don't have milk because there's not, there's a milk shortage in the country, but the children, the school children are all given milk. Um, and there's something just really moving about that. Um, this idea of the children are the privileged class in this society. Um, these are the children of working people. And in what you were saying, Doc, earlier, that an investment in education, an investment in children is the investment in the future. Yeah, and like while reading this with you all, like what's been running through my head is what happens when the values, you know, of a society are not of the children, like you're saying with Emily, um, what we're already pointing out. And like of the millionaire, like you want to, you know, just be that. And in the Black Reconstruction, in the um, Black Worker chapter, he said that the, um, the true significance of slavery in the United States to the whole social development of America lay in the ultimate relation of slaves to, to democracy. Yeah. Uh, what were to be the limits of democratic control in the United States? If all labor, black as well as white, became free, were given schools and the right to vote, what control could or should be set to the power and action of these laborers? Was the rule of the mass of Americans to be unlimited and the right of the rule extended to all men regardless of race and color? Or if not, 
what power of dictatorship and control, and how would property and privilege be protected? This was the great and primary question, which was in the minds of the men who wrote the Constitution of the United States and continued in the minds of thinkers down through the slavery, uh, down through the slavery controversy. It still remains with the, uh, with the world as the problem of democracy expands and touches all races and nations. And I started thinking about it when Doc, you're pointing out the relationship between Lincoln and um, Stalin. Yeah. And what was also like, I'm excited to read that chapter about Stalin because I really liked it. <laughs> and it's clarifying. <laughs> it really, you know, it's cool. Um, but like, I was over at, um, I it was, I don't know, so it was like uh, 22nd and Lehigh. And uh, my, my uh, one of my cousins lived around there and I visited them to see how he was managing, see how he was making, you know, doing it. Um, and he, he, I mean, he got skinny, skinnier and I was worried for him. And he told me that, you know, he wasn't doing that well. And then there's a, you know, uh, either at Temple, one of the women who sit at the desk was saying how like uh, a cleaner would be like crying like uh, at night and she didn't really want to tell you know people that she was feeling that kind of anxiety and um it's just different people even from the people like a friend of mine who lives down the street who like doesn't have a job and he's my age and um he just has to be at home to the children who are like in home without going to school and this is like I guess specific to this particular moment we're in and also why it's so important when we're thinking about like, well, what is important? What is important to value? What is, you know, um, because uh, like these ideas will affect the like the lives of people, how we can, um, you know, figure out these questions of civilization like, what does it mean to be civilized or not? Um, and yeah, like Divya, what you pointed out with the with the question of work and like the importance of that, um, that was also striking within this chapter because that I, I forgot exactly what Du Bois said, but I believe he he wrote about how it was important for human, I don't know, nature or just you know habits. Um, and just, um, yeah, yeah, like, I mean, that's, I was just going to interject that too, um, but um, that thing about education is still whirling around my head, and I guess what the free school is, you know, is a part of, like, that uh, institutionalizing what, like, a common education can look like, and what it actually is, which is that debate, discussion, um, that was pointed out within the Soviet Union and also like, because I think in another chapter of Russian America, excuse me if I'm getting off of this particular chapter, but he was talking about like the voting process and he would say how there's the voting came last, but the first thing was the discussion and debate about the issues at hand, um, but the, yeah. Serafina, I'm so glad you brought up 
um, Lincoln and the Civil War and um, Black Reconstruction because like so much of what Du Bois is saying um, about civilization, it struck me in this, um, in this uh, chapter is directly, and um, Doc, your article on Lenin, uh, and the connection between Black Reconstruction mm -hmm. and the struggle of the Russians for their freedom. Mm -hmm. And how Du Bois as a witness in the Russian Revolution is looking at it like, you know, how as a model for his people, because the Dunning School, which came out against and said re Reconstruction failed, mm -hmm. um, was saying, essentially, I'll read a quote from them, if uh, I may. Um, William Dunning said, the claim that there is nothing in the color of the skin from the point of view of political ethics is a great sophism. A black skin means membership in a race of men, which has never of itself succeeded in subjecting passion to reason, has never therefore created civilization of any kind. And so like everything he is saying here and in Criteria of Negro Art, where he so beautifully says, if you tonight suddenly should become full-fledged Americans, if your color faded, or the color line here in Chicago were miraculously forgotten. Suppose too, you became at the same time rich and powerful. What is it that you would want? What, what would you immediately seek? Would you buy the most powerful motor cars in outgrazed Cook County? Would you buy the most elaborate estate on the North Shore? Would you be a Rotarian or a lion or a whatnot of the very last degree? Would you wear the most striking clothes, give the richest dinners and buy the longest press notices? And that was in 1926. Right. I believe the same year that this book was published. No, 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 that he oh, went uh, to the Soviet Union for the first. Oh, oh sorry, he, he went to the Soviet Union that year. I'm sorry, excuse me. And it's unmistakable what that, and I think the speech was given at Carter G. Woodson's um, memorial or, and I, I forget the event. It was like an event in his occasion. Oh, no, he was getting a medal. And um, he is recalling, and it's in October, I, I wonder when he went to Russia that year, maybe it was before. And to come back and then give this address, Criteria of Negro Art, mm -hmm. after his trip to Russia, that makes this even more powerful. Mm -hmm. And it goes right back to mm -hmm. Lincoln and the Civil War and Black Reconstruction. Yeah. I think the important thing about thinking about the Civil War is like what Doc, you were already pointing out, like that transition to a new nation or like the possibilities that could emerge from. And that's like the question that we're faced with now or similarly to. Absolutely, I agree with that. You know, and I was going to say, you know, even if, you know, you could look at it either way, either the essay, uh, the Criteria Negro Art was influenced by his trip to the Soviet Union, or the writing of the article was part of the lens 
through which he looked at the Soviet Union. And you're right, art, the role of art in elevating the working masses and in, in this change of psychology, the role of art, and that's why you know, Du Bois says, and if I'm correct, Divya, in the criteria of Negro art, that he himself was not interested in art for art's sake. You know, uh, art should serve the people and should serve freedom, was Du Bois's just, you know, bold uh, uh, assertion. And that's why, you know, you see it working through his observations of the Soviet Union. Does the state serve the people? Does the party serve the people? You know, he, and it's so interesting. He's always putting the people first, the working people first. And, and you know, that is why, you know, I would say, and of course, you know, I know I'm gonna come in for a lot of attack and so on, you know, uh, Du Bois might be the most important thinker for this moment because he re-anchors all of the questions, major outstanding political questions that are at the core of the contradictions and all of that going on. I mean, you know, just think about it. Think about the criteria of Negro art, children is privileged, uh, the state as the instrument of working people. You know, all of these ideas that, and I, I agree with you, that come out of reconstruction and the post-Civil War period. And thus, he situates Lincoln flawed as he was, you know, undeveloped on many issues, but seeing a different nation than the one seen by, let us say, Hamilton or Jefferson or Washington. He, was, he had envisioned something very different. And so, you know, you take, you know, and, and this, and, uh, let me, I don't want to talk to him, but just this constant attack upon Stalin. I mean, <laughs> He is the worst person second to Hitler in human history. Uh, but why the attack? I, I ironically, oh, excuse me. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, go, go ahead, Divya. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and ironically, given Stalin defeated Hitler. And that is <laughs> always a contradiction, even if you mention that to people. Oh, he was an authoritarian. He was just like Hitler. And yes, you know, to some extent, yes, the violence was used on both sides. And that's something that Gandhi mentions, you know, we can come back to that, though. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't. The forces were um, historically opposed to fascism. Yeah, yeah, there's no question. There's no question. And, and, and the other thing I just wanted to end on this is that um, it is common in American discursive practices, the right, the left, and the center, the liberals and the socialists. It's almost, you can almost say it's the same. I mean, you go from one to the other and you say, well, you, you get lost. Well, am I with the conservatives now? Oh no, I'm with the left. 
but you sound like the, the liberals. So I mean, you if you know where I'm coming, I don't know whether I'm making that clear enough, but they proceed, as someone said, from the same American assumption. It's always Americans first, the individual first, um, uh, uh, well, you know, the practice of shutting people down that they disagree with. The left is kind of outdoing the right in this, this these days. But, you know, it's, I guess, hey, hey Catherine, tell me if I'm wrong. There's a certain gentleness in the way Du Bois constructs discourse, a certain welcoming. I welcome you to not only hear my opinion, but to disagree with it or agree with it. It's a whole fundamentally different way of discourse. It doesn't have that authoritarian, uh, I know the truth, and if you don't agree with me, you're my enemy, even though I might not understand what you're saying. It is, it is, and that's and that's throughout Du Bois. I mean, it's uh, subtle, nuanced, but I think more than anything, it's very gentle. And I'm I'm so impressed that he ends this chapter with poetry. It's so deep, but to um, to gesture towards mm. the poetic says something about the writer himself, that in the end, there is music, there's poetry, there is hope. Yeah, yeah. There is an air of honesty about oh, the way yeah. he writes. It's so authentic and yeah. it is so appealing. Uh, you know, and that's what captures you, uh, basically. The other thing I want to mention is that uh, he also uh, talks about how what was being done in the Soviet Union in terms of uh, propagandizing or educating or what, you know, the people was something that the United States was already doing. And so if you're going to condemn the Soviet Union, you need to condemn the United States for doing the same thing. And, and it was just like, he, he mentioned, as he, as we read along, he will mention certain subtle realities. Uh, and it's, and it's for the, uh, uh, unenlightened because his purpose is to enlighten us. Yes, there's no question. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in some comments. Uh, Raju writes, I was interested to see in Du Bois's description, the big emphasis on education and its importance with regard to the change in psychology to center the worker. Du Bois briefly mentions in this chapter, the Chinese university of 300 or 400 people. Yes. I believe he is referring to Sun Yat-sen University of the Toilers of China, which existed between 1925 to 1930. This university was established after the death of Sun Yat-sen as a mark of solidarity between the Chinese and the Russian struggle and a respect to Sun Yat-sen. It trained many Chinese communists who would go on to participate in the Chinese revolution. Du Bois was an admirer of Sun Yat-sen. As he mentions later in the book, calling his program an extreme socialism. Lenin was an admirer of Sun Yat-sen, also calling him a sincere militant Democrat supported by the Chinese peasantry. I think this is another example where their thinking might have been similar 
particularly with regard to the capabilities of a backward class, i.e. the Chinese peasantry and its representative in the national revolutionary struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, Meghna writes, when I first read The Dark Princess, I thought about Cultilia's conversations with Matthew about the dictatorship of workers as a prophetic dream, a vision for the world to be worked towards. However, reading this work makes it clear how Du Bois was writing firmly rooted in sociological realities. He saw in Russia industrial democracy, the unity of nations, culture and art for all, the possibility of raising oppressed and exploited people to the center of civilization and culture. As Cotillia says to Matthew, dearest, in spite all you say, I believe, I believe in men, I believe in the unlovely masses of men, I believe in the prophetic word which you spoke in Berlin and which perhaps you only half believed yourself. And, which, and why should I not believe? I also, I, I have seen slaves ruling in Chicago and they did not do nearly as badly as princes in Russia. Gentle culture and the beauty and courtesies of life, they are the real end of all living, but they will not come by the dreaming of the few. Civilization cannot stand on its apex. It must stand on a broad base supporting its inevitable and eternal apex of the fools. The tyranny of which you dream is the true method which I too envisage, but choose well the tyrants. There is eternal life. How truly you have put, workers unite, men cry, while in truth, always, thinkers who do not work have tried to unite workers who do not think. Only working thinkers can unite thinking workers, end quote. <laughs> Uh, could could you ask her what page that's on, by the way? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, if she's listening, she can share the second the page number. Yeah. She continues. I also think it's interesting that Du Bois calls his work Russia and America, not USSR and America. He saw the Soviet, he saw the Soviet Union as a civilization rooted in its centuries of history. As China rises as a communist nation and as a great civilization, this way of thinking about history is very significant. Yeah, I think uh, reading this really makes us like we have to look back at a lot of the things we've read of his and think about how it connects to his visit to the Soviet Union and his study of the Soviet Union. I mean, we we're discussing Black Reconstruction, but I think also Dark Princess and I'm sure a number of, of other works as well. Um, Jake Harris has a comment. He says, yeah, the children part was very moving because the children were so eager to learn and talk about peace. It shows a whole different life. And those children seem so happy to be thinking about peace, which is beautiful in and of itself. Here I watch children being taught about war. Playtime is playing with guns and being the cowboy that kills the Indians. And children are ignored by parents on cell phones, taught not to contribute to the world that they're living in, but only to live for themselves. To live for oneself is to live by oneself in a sort of solitary confinement because you can't really reach anyone without a type of understanding with sharing oneself. If this leaves people and children weak and alone and exploitable, to know a peaceful life, to have such a vitality in the life world of a people under unity really shows a whole new world for the children to live in. Uh, uh, Johan, could you read that uh, last sentence that Jake, it's a formulation I heard, I just want to... Uh... Sure. He says, to know a peaceful life, to have such a vitality in the life world of a people under unity really shows a whole new world for the children to, leave, to live in. 
Could you, and the, the sentence right before that one, if you don't mind, too. Uh, he says, to live for oneself is to live by oneself in a sort yes. of solitary yes. confinement because you yes. can't really reach anyone without a type of understanding with sharing oneself. This leaves people and children weak and alone and exploitable. To know a peaceful life, to have such a vitality in the life world of a people under unity really shows a whole new world for the children to live in. Right. That's right. And you know, if I might just say, a, a really serious part of this crisis is the crisis of children. And, and you know, like, like Jake said, to live for yourself is to live by yourself. That is so moving. Um, isn't that a lesson that we have to teach? You know, um, you know, almost like, you know, we're talking about Du Bois talking about Stalin, mm -hmm. where, you know, all the academics and the theorists can have an idea of what to do and can talk about what to do. But ultimately, like, uh, like Magna quoted from uh, Du Bois's Dark Princess, uh, uh, thinkers who do not work are trying to lead workers who do not think. So what do you do? I mean, first of all, yeah, well, you, I mean, you, you see the contradiction, the dilemma, but it is the working class who thinks that becomes the future. I, I just, and I think a way to win workers, one of the big ways to win workers is to convince working people that your program will benefit their children. People are prepared to sacrifice to any degree if they feel that you and your program and what you talk about benefits their children. You know, that also reminds me because reading this chapter, like you could really have a life in the Soviet Union. <laughs> you know? Like, That's yeah. Life. <laughs> well, yeah. And that, and that I would say, uh, Serafina, in reading this chapter, it, it inspires me to think that there is a way out, that all is not hopeless, you know, um, that a society beset by such acute contradictions and, and so on. It's a society that is not long for this world. Mm -hmm. But yes, there is a way out, whether or not the people have the power to seize that is a whole nother question. Yeah, I think I also agree that this section on children and schooling was very uh, significant. And um, the treatment of children in the Soviet Union is very significant. I, I have, I've seen uh, elsewhere that also about how schools had a large degree of, uh, children had a large degree of self-government in running their Absolutely. classes. And, and they used to vote on how to spend their spare to their free times and free periods. And interestingly, but then there's also the ideological component, which is that often they would, for example, I had seen that during the Vietnam War, they would vote to spend their spare time making toys for the children of Vietnam, for the Soviet government to send there. So it was like between children of, 
uh, different societies and different struggles, the sense of uh, solidarity, which is something very uh, difficult to imagine uh, here in this society. Um, and even with the uh, trade unions, when we were talking about adults, there was still a great em emphasis on political education. If you look at the uh, World Peace Council, for example, they would often talk about how these different petitions like the Stockholm Appeal to End Nuclear Weapons, the different trade unions in the Soviet Union and the socialist states would have meetings and discussions on it and workers would vote to sign it and promote it. And so it was like a very, that's again, the great irony is that we're taught this irrational hatred of the Soviet Union and taught it was a totalitarian society. But then you see how educated and politicized the people were. Everybody from the school children to the factory workers were all very much engaged in politics, but it was a politics guided by ideology and principle and by uh, the perspective of, of uh, the Communist Party, who were people who were, you know, had achieved a certain position of respect in society. So I think that's significant. Um, more comments. Uh, Gregory Muhammad. Uh, writes that he's been watching the stream. He says, thank you, Saturday Free School. I enjoyed the reading and discussion. My favorite writing of Du Bois is The Souls of Black Folk. I will join again, peace and blessings. Uh, Antonio Robinson writes, love the concept of a religion of humanity relating to what Doc said earlier about beginning with the psychology behind it. Just one of the reasons I, lo I love about this group is the sense of urgency to address deep think and it leads to this type of progressive dialogue. And I think uh, this concept of a new religion also uh, is from uh, Emily Wood. Was it from the Battle for Peace or Du Bois talked about? He uses it in this chapter, I think. Right. In this chapter also, yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but you know, um, but see, this is the parallel to Gore, Gandhi, Du Bois, Sun Yat-sen, you know, See, this thing, I, I was going to read something from a later chapter, you know, where Du Bois on a second trip. By the way, hey, Gregory, um, the souls of Black folk is great. But as we see Du Bois mature, you see even a greater Du Bois, a more impactful Du Bois. Um, in fact, uh, Du Bois says that uh, about the souls, uh, in his writing of his, uh, the book that is a successor book of essays, Dark Water. He says that, um, that when he wrote Souls, it was not the most, he was not the clearest about the issues and the contradictions. And so he writes in 19, 19, 19, 20, Dark Water. But then by the time you get to this manuscript, we're looking at a man that, how do you put it? I mean, that has transcended everything around. When I say transcended, he has gone beyond. Mm. He has gone in places that few, if any, thinkers had gone. Um, and when we get to his thing with China, he said, can I just, can I, you don't mind if I just quote this? This is, uh, I forget what chapter, chapter four, maybe. Um, he says, and, and he said, and this I know, any attempt 
to explain the world without giving China a place of extraordinary prominence is futile. Perhaps the riddle of the universe will be settled in China. And if not, in no part of the world which ignores China. You know, when he says the riddle of the universe, he is talking, you know, he, he talks metaphorically all the time. These, these unbelievable, that's a Gregory. The other thing, the literary practice and the use of metaphor and irony, but um, uh, the riddle of the universe is the riddle of humanity. That all religions in their purest form have strove to understand. And the, the greatness of Du Bois, this is why he does not reject religion, he rejects dogma. You know, uh, well, the Buddha, Gandhi, <laughs> you know, uh, well, anyway, I, I just wanted to, there is something so futuristic that to understand the riddles that have plagued human humanity. And, and you know, as such has led us down wrong paths. We taking the right path is not the norm, it's abnormal. Humanity more often has made mistakes. Well, nothing wrong with that. But Du Bois felt that the Russian Revolution finally got it right. That's an interesting, and that going forward to explain the human universe, you would have to know China. And then he also says in the same kind of uh, chapter, um, the unity of, of Buddha and Confucius of, of Sun Yat-sen, Tagore, and Gandhi. Well, it's, and this is in the writing on Russia and the Russian Revolution. Okay, uh, more com another comment by Jake. He says, uh, I also like the idea of worker psychology. It makes me think of the world in Africa. In the chapter Atlantis, he talks about how the uneducated mass all had a higher level of artistry than that of the Renaissance. It was a collective state, West African civilization that demonstrates what Du Bois shows as wealth for people. Slavery being the reversal that slavery created people as wealth. I think that's why knowing Africa is so important in light of the worker psychology because African civilization was reaching towards peace and beauty, a different frame of reference based on the needs of the people, which rhymes with the worker psychology. This is why this history is hidden from us. So black folk and those who see themselves in the struggle of black people don't see an uplift in either communism or worker psychology. King's nonviolence is so similar, a revolution of values through a truth force. Um, Yvonne writes, the Soviet state invested in trying to reach all of her diverse peoples, evidenced by Du Bois informing us that they printed books for her 
100 or more languages. Du Bois detailed description of USSR nine years after taking state power helps us to understand the revolutionary process, the need for vision and sacrifice and challenges leadership faces. Um, Doe writes, I really love Du Bois's anecdote of the workers who naturally want to clasp hands with those of the American workers and their humility and respect for the industrial prowess of Pittsburgh. Within the psychology and values of the Soviet workers seems to be a natural inclination for unity with all workers and for peace. When Americans demonized the authoritarianism of the Soviets, the Soviets saw the best in America. Mm. That's all our comments for now. Could I say one thing about Tagore and this whole question of human psychology? Um, Tagore, one of the things I love that he said was, um, he said, civilization is beauty of conduct. And um, I always think of children and how they react to their parents. And, you know, we like, it is the child, but the child's character is so, I mean, from the womb, the what, you know, like, if you believe in this theory of maternal impressions and things like that, like, what you eat as a mother, what you surround yourself with as a mother, and I, I'm not saying fathers are not involved in this, but something about the mother feels really important. The condition of the mother, you know, in this society is somewhat terrifying. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If you think of just all, I mean, the character of women is an important factor in civilization. Um, and what does it mean to be a good woman, to raise your child in a way that is, um, where you're not a hypocrite, you know? Um, I always think about that because it's like, if you tell a child and you punish them and you say, you're a bad child for doing that. Mm -hmm. Like they're just, and we're all children ultimately, but like, you, and we're being told constantly by various forces, you know, you're bad, whether that's, you know, race or poverty or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you're saying they're saying you're bad and then we start to believe it and there's some truth to what Fanon says in that sense you internalize what the authorities say and then you say I must be bad yeah yeah and then you and then you start doing bad things I'm not saying this is the course everyone goes but mm -hmm. some people find a way to break free often through God and that is where it's so powerful when you realize, you know, you are pure, mm -hmm. you are divine. And kids stop trusting you when the parents act contrarily to the law of love. Or, and so, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Or, you know, when society tells the child that your mother and father are nothing or no good. Yep. You know, that's that's part of the problem with a lot of postmodern discourse on gender 
uh, and other things because it neither upholds the mother, but it attacks the father as yep. a source of, I mean, it's, it's so, it has, well, really post, postmodernism at the end of the day is uh, profoundly anti-human. It attacks the human being and their potentiality. It can never be revolutionary because it does not believe in human beings, you know? But I agree with you. When you tell children, and this is the, the role of systemic uh, racism in this country, that your parents are failure, that your parents are no good. And that affects black children deeply, especially in school and, you know, the, oh. yeah, I would have, I just wanted to underline what you're saying, Divya. Yeah, no, and I fully, I mean, postmodernism is really a new version of the initial ideology of, you know, there is no God, there is no truth. Okay, so we can behave in whatever way to each other then, you know, um, and then, you know, you start to believe that you're bad, then you teach your kid that they're bad. And I'm, I'm not just talking within our, ourselves, even without the, I mean, of course it's coming from, but then we have a choice, right? It's like, I struggle with that. And I wonder, it's like, how would I put that on a kid or a student or whoever? Yeah. Um, and it's like, a, it's like, it starts with the child almost leads the parent, but then the child is also dependent on the parent. It's kind of this two-way relation. And um, I always think of Horton Spillers and what she said in her essay, which is in a, it's like an ironic reversal of postmodernism in some ways. But at the same time, she says, you know, mama's, baby papa's maybe and it's like the idea is always to blame the black father but what about the white father you know wasn't it but it's the white father's um isn't it the white father's responsibility to be a loving father too and it goes back to this law I discovered in some of my reading. Um, just it's this law of partis sequitur ventrum, which the English is an English common law in the late 17th century, when they first started establishing colonies in the Caribbean, they invoked this law to absolve the, you know, any child born to um, a white man under slavery with a black mother uh, of any uh, responsibilities. So this created a rationale for them uh, in their moral uh, codex for why it was okay to just abandon your children and to sell them You recall uh, Henry Winston's critique, Du Boisian critique 
of Patrick Moynihan. Yeah, and Spillers. Yeah, you know, it, 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 they, they parallel, yes. Yep. Another comment from Jeremiah. Uh, he writes, Tagore was in deep agreement with Du Bois about the importance of the Soviet Union as a new experiment in civilization. In his essay, Crisis and Civilization, Tagore wrote of the Soviet Union. I have also been privileged to witness while in Moscow, the unsparing energy with which Russia has tried to fight disease and illiteracy and has succeeded in steadily liquidating ignorance and poverty wiping off the humiliation from the face of a vast continent. Her civilization is free from all invidious distinction between one class and another, between one sect and another. The rapid and astounding progress achieved by her made me happy and jealous at the same time. One aspect of the Soviet administration which particularly pleased me was that it provided no scope for unseemly conflict of religious differences nor set one community against another by unbalanced distribution of political favors. That I consider a truly civilized administration, which impartially serves the common interests of the people. You know, maybe somebody should tell everybody who Tagore was. <laughs> you know, with using his name, I'm certainly a lot of people that maybe never heard of Tagore. Divya, tell us who Tagore was. Oh Lord, um, Rabindranath. I mean, you know, a brief uh, description, <laughs> not the long Rab one. No, no, and I could certainly not do him justice. Um, uh, he was a very important poet um, in the Indian anti-colonial movement. Um, he actually was in America for some time, um, and then he. Um, went back to India and established a school, very similar to the free school oh, wow. uh, <laughs> called Shanti Niketan, where he trained artists. Um, it was an important center for philosophy, discussion, um, and you know, Tagore and Gandhi met there and you know, highly respected Gandhi. Um, and um, you know, they had some differences. Um, but at the same time, just this enormous respect. And he, um, he was actually a poet laureate, mm -hmm. I believe. Uh, no, he's not poet laureate, excuse me. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Yeah. I think he was nominated by Yeats, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. who also wrote that poem, The Second Coming. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, which you know we've quoted several times in the free school, and um, so yeah, and he was offered a lordship by the British government, and he turned it down. He he said, "I don't want to be a sir. I'm just um, an artist of the people." And I think he. I think he traveled a lot. Um, like I knew of him because I knew of him because of um, he traveled to China hmm. and spent a good amount of time in China as well. And a lot of Chinese studied at the school you were talking at, talking about Divya, I think. Um, but it just reminded me of the reason why the reason why I bring up travels also because Doc, you and, and I think Catherine earlier too talked a lot about 
the importance of Du Bois as a traveler. Um, and also like what you've been saying about social science, how part of it is to be, is experiential. Um, and just how important, I don't know, just the importance of travel and being able to actually see what's happening um, to people around the world. That kind of thing reminds me that the concept that we, like this thing of art and science, mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, I just want to tell you, you know, uh, when my daughter Nicole was about 11, there was a, an international children's camp in the Soviet Union. And children came from all over the world. And they would literally go free. And my daughter, it was Camp Artec, my daughter went there when she was about 11 on her own, you know? And, um, and she met children from everywhere. Um, and I, it inspired in her uh, a love of travel and living in other parts of the world. Uh, yeah, it's, that was, a, you know, and, and if she would ever come on this, I mean, it would be interesting to hear what she would say about that. Uh, it, yeah, this children's thing is no small matter because like you said, what is a child anyway? <laughs> what constitutes childhood? Uh, certainly uh, not this in, um, in fantasization of grown people, you know, we're regression, we're going back to my childhood. The child is more advanced than you are, frankly, but yeah. Uh, I mean, it's uh, also, it's, I think, significant how seriously he takes his opportunities to travel. Mm -hmm. um, because also, if you think about him as a, a person from a community which is, uh, you know, predominantly poor and which very few people ever have the chance to travel outside of the U.S., mm -hmm. he takes it very serious. I mean, he basically travels as a social scientist, yes. He's not traveling in a kind of just for pleasure. Mm -hmm. And like, even he talks about how he pushed himself to go down the Baltic Sea and go to Constantinople and other places. It was kind of, uh, and in Ukraine after its devastation, it was all uh, an attempt to travel with, as a kind of representative of his people, as a social scientist, as an ambassador of peace, as many things. And mm -hmm. while he's traveling, keeping this kind of critical uh, sociological perspective on everything he sees. And then the, the book as a, you know, as a product of that, as kind of his, uh, offering to people who may not be able to travel. And certainly in the time he wrote this, it was very, very difficult for anyone to travel from the United States to the Soviet Union because of political reasons. And uh, even for us, many decades later, we can't go back to that time when the Soviet Union existed. But this labor, which is done, I mean, it, it, the fruit of it is that, you know, people for all times can go on that journey with him and gain those insights with him. So yeah, he took, he took travel very seriously. And uh, it, it's something that just comes up a lot in his works. He talks a lot about his travels, but always in this kind of very serious and uh, scientific way. Yeah. As, as we've been, we discussed a little bit last week, the 
significance of this book is renewed with the new tensions between the U.S. and Russia, which seem like they may even escalate in the in the weeks ahead. Yeah. And uh, there's a renewed demonization of everything Russian. And uh, so many, so much of what he said about Russia still, even though it's no longer the Soviet Union, I mean, it's still very important for there to be this kind of uh, mutual understanding for peaceful coexistence between the United States and Russia. And, you know, Russia, and it's interesting how much he talks about China as well, Russia and China oh, yeah. as two neighboring and connected civilizations are so significant for the world right now and in america there's so much problem there's so much such a great attempt to keep us ignorant about those two civilizations so that we don't interfere with the plans of the uh, elite to wage war on them and uh, wreak havoc on them once again and so du bois's uh writings on those two societies are so I mean, the, the significance is just so renewed. I mean, that's why we were talking about why he's the thinker for this era, I, I because think these, these issues are so pressing once again. Yeah, I, I really think so. And if I might say, Johan, you know, at some point, what, which is uh, generally a part of, of what we do in the free school, it's to, to literally establish a flag saying, this is where the left, the progressive forces in the United States in some way should, if not must go. Um, because what passes for the left at this point is worse than a bad joke. Um, and it is bereft, or, or to use Michelle's word, empty of theory and philosophy. And uh, to add insult to injury, a left, especially in this country, that does not know Du Bois cannot lead the people. They can't do it. Um, or to think that you are left by the volume of your voice or your slogans, uh, there's more to this, and it's a very complicated process, but this is, this is Du Bois. You know, humanity first, dark humanity first. You cannot know the human universe without knowing China. What is all of that? You cannot know the trajectory of the future without understanding the Russian revolution. I mean, this is grounding. And this is not, this is what working people want to know about. These, this is the framework of discussions that they're interested in. They're, so this is, I think, I think whether we want to be or not, the nature of our discourse is a deep critique of what passes for the left in this country. And I'm reminded about the first chapter of how Du Bois was talking and saying that, you know, there's all this propaganda about the USSR and like he was 
And the thing about Trotsky and stuff, and in my mind is going to the fact, well, he had to go and figure out the truth about Russia, um, USSR or whatever, um, to also be able to um, understand it. And I think this thing about the truth also is really kind of like, that's why there's this mixture of science and art. Like you have to like, you have, well, knowing isn't in an abstract sense. It's in the concrete and in theory. You know, theory is to be able to talk and be able to extrapolate yes. and think of new like, you know, ideas. Um, but that doesn't come out of nowhere either. So that's why, you know, you know, there's like Philadelphia, for instance, we talk about. And then, you know, who's in Philadelphia? Where are they and what do they talk about? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, how do you know? You can't abstractly uh, assume um, that you know because you're black, for instance, mm-hmm. and you're like writing about it. Um, but it, yeah, to, and that, I mean, that also, you know, goes to Gandhi, Fidel, you go to the people. Um, but that's the other thing too, because when you talk about truth and you talk about like, well, what is actually true? You have to talk to people. And that's what Jake was pointing um, out earlier. And he was saying how like, um, you know, you have like, it's that uh, to be able to deal with other people is to be with other people. And that also, you know, kind of causes new, you know, syntheses of ideas of, you know, combinations, I guess. Um, and I think with that is that there's, you know, an emergence of trust, you know, like, or not even like to say it like that, but it's like um, to be able to build trust with the people and to be able to talk about what's actually going on, you know, um, is to be there, is to um, also be concerned and ask the, you know, right questions. Cause like, it is off. The left is backwards mm-hmm. and they're backwards because they're not dealing with the truth. They rather deal with themselves. They rather just be, you know, kind of, you know, uh, ascending, you know, to Western ideals. Um, but the West, you know, is not progressive. If we want to be anti-imperialist or whatever, you can't stand with an imperialist country, you know, in the interest that, you know, but also I think what was cool about two weeks ago when uh, Glenn Ford was on was that debate and things like that. And, you know, we have to discuss these ideas. And um, the problem is that there's like this silence or at least the one, I took a Russia class this past semester and I used this book throughout the whole class. I, I sure did print out this book from the temple, you know, printer and I, <laughs> John, don't laugh at me. And I use this book because I don't, you know, I only print it out because I don't have Wi-Fi where I'm at. So um, yeah, like um, either all these questions about Stalin being uh, authoritarian and then, you know, connecting that with Trump and other things, it's like, uh, and then like what Doc, you were saying about, um, well, what is the right, what is the left, you know, do we, like as people in free school um are we aligned with you know whatever side you know um but and it comes to a point where you agree with what is being proposed by schools well what i was taking in this class 
you know, saying all this propaganda about the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, and not what Du Bois is writing about, because, I mean, it's not in the interest, you know, of this country to, uh, for us to know the truth. And um, I guess in my experience, or in the experience I had with the class, it was, it was, um, or like, that is to say, I guess, um, is that like, you know, the question about the left, like to be able to be like, what is a, what can be a progressive force in this time is to also discuss what happened within the Soviet Union. Absolutely. It's to debate out these ideas mm -hmm. as we do um, and not to be afraid because it's different. And yeah, I mean, that's what you are, you guys already said with, you know, Du Bois being gentle and, uh, you know, uh, his writing. Um, but that's the thing about tyranny, you know, like when there's a, when, or in this country, when it is more or less uh, authoritarian in a lot of ways, or like controlling in terms of the ideas and thoughts of um, people. And um, not educating the people. Yeah. Right. You know, I, You're I, supposed I, to know one thing yes. and nothing, you know, yeah. No. But and and I, I sometimes, you know, wonder how you guys survive in these universities. I mean, what it is, you talk about authoritarianism and dictatorship. These people, you know, including the professors, it's not just the administration. Uh, they make it known to students. We will destroy you for life if you go against us. Uh, I, I don't know how you guys do it. But that's so different than this conversation we're having about the importance of education being for the people yeah. instead of education being for profit yeah. or something. Yeah, but. or education being to prepare people to govern themselves, to prepare the working class to organize the state. You know, it's just, but it's to keep you subordinate and subservient and distracted. Uh, I think the appearance in the forms that it has of, um, of, uh, of gender studies, of queer studies, of even black studies uh, is a distraction from a, a, a struggle for freedom a distraction from freedom and an idea of the struggle. Uh, I think we're living in the worst of all possible situations from the standpoint of thought. And that's why I think, you know, all over the country, people are gonna have to find a way to set up their own schools, their own um, ways to help think through this crisis and to prepare uh, for, um, for something that replicates the Russian Revolution. On that note, um, this idea that, you know, education is a business, I think is at the, is at the crux of this problem. And you know, I went even in Du Bois's time, you know, Harvard would be some place where, I mean, yes, deeply segregated. And yet the idea of education then 
was not so much about shopkeeping as it is today, mm -hmm. such that it's like you, it's like, you know, even the idea of plagiarism, this is mine. And I mean, like you're trained. I didn't realize how much I had that in me. This idea of claiming some idea. I mean, who does an idea belong to? It didn't come from you. It was something working through you. Usually other people, and most of all, if you believe God. And, you know, since it's the season, I just think of Jesus, the teacher of teachers. And there's something that Swami Vivekananda said about Jesus of Nazareth. He said, all the teachers of humanity are unselfish. Suppose Jesus, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth was teaching and a man came and told him, what you teach is beautiful. I believe that it is the way to perfection and I'm ready to follow it. But I do not care to worship you as the only begotten son of God. What would be the answer of Jesus of Nazareth? Very well, brother, follow the ideal and advance in your own way. I do not care whether you give me credit for the teaching or not. I am not a shopkeeper. I do not trade in religion. I teach truth and truth is nobody's property. Nobody can patent truth. Truth is God himself, go forward. But what the disciples say these days no matter whether you practice the teachings or not, do you give credit to the man? If you credit the master, you will be saved. If not, there is no salvation for you. And thus the whole teaching of the master is degenerated and all the struggle and fight is for the personality of man. And these personalities, you know, the individual, And you're just like, it wasn't me. I think that's the, something that I'm struggling with. Well, we're no more comments. So we're at about 1.30. Do <laughs> you think this is a good point to wrap up? Okay, well, uh, thank you to everybody who listened and followed the chapter two with us. And uh, thanks as always to everybody who joined us today in the live stream. And, and we'll do chapter three next week. Right, we'll do chapter three next week. And everyone should have the link to download and check that chapter out in advance if they like. And of course, we'll follow along next week. So again, happy holidays and we'll see everybody next week.